The following is a conversation with Ryan Schiller, creator of Librex, an anonymous discussion feed for college communities, starting at first with Yale, then the Ivy Leagues, and now adding Stanford and MIT. Their mission is to give students a place to explore ideas and issues in a positive way, but with much more personal and intellectual freedom than has defined college campuses in recent history. I think this is a very difficult but worthy project. Quick thank you to our sponsors, Allform, Magic Spoon, BetterHelp, and Brave. Click their links to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that Ryan is a young entrepreneur and genuine human being who quickly won me over. He's inspiring in many ways, both in the struggle he had to overcome in his personal life, but also in the fact that he did not know how to code, but saw a problem in this world, in his community, that he cared about. And for that, he learned to code and built a solution in the best way he knew how. That's an important reminder for us humans. Let us not only complain about the problems in the world, let us fix them. I also have to say that there's passion in Ryan's eyes for really wanting to make a difference in the world. His story, his effort gives me hope for the future. There is hate in this world, but I believe there's much more love. And I believe it's possible to build online platforms that connect us through our common humanity as we explore difficult, personal, even painful ideas together. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of as now. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps because I value your time and listening experience. So you can skip, but please still check out our sponsors. I'm fortunate to be able to be very selective with the sponsors we take on. So hopefully if you buy their stuff, you'll find value in it just as I have. Click their links in the description. It really is the best way to support this podcast. This episode is sponsored by a new sponsor, Allform. They make stylish, comfortable, customizable sofas. For an engineering mind, their modular design pleases my soul. I say they're a new sponsor, but I've had their stuff for quite a while. I have, in fact, their black leather love seat. How great is the term love seat? I think you can't help but step up the depth of human connection between any two people that sit on the love seat. <laughs> I sat on the all form love seat with Mr. Michael Malice. And now I'm in love, see, it works. Some of the best experiences in my life had to do with just sitting with friends, talking, and the weird friends, the out there friends. I think quote unquote adult life can kind of carry you down this stream of busyness where you no longer have these all night conversations with the weirdos in your life. I think that's probably why I never want to grow up. Anyway, All Form is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners, that's you, my dear friend, at allform.com slash Lex. That's allform.com slash Lex to find your perfect sofa or love seat. Michael Malice is not included with your purchase. Finally, they're deciding whether to sponsor this podcast long-term, so now's the time to buy their stuff if you like it. This episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs, and 140 calories in each serving. They have a couple limited edition flavors this month, cookies and cream and maple waffle. But my favorite flavor is still cocoa, but these sound pretty good. I haven't tried them yet, I will try. You should too. 
Yes, I am very much excited to be living in this day and age when we have reusable rockets being launched into space and landing back on Earth. But I think what really excites me <laughs> is that we can have what used to be a sugar-stuffed meal, like cereal, that's now completely keto-friendly. Anyway, Magic Spoon has a 100 happiness guarantee, so if you don't like it, they refund it. Even Dostoevsky, Sartre, and Camus would be impressed. Go to magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex at checkout to save five bucks off your order. That's magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, help. They figure out what you need and match you with a licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. I've always been fascinated with talk therapy. And I guess the broader way to phrase that is uh, the power of conversations. In some sense, that's what podcasting is. When I was younger, I did see it as the ideal of psychotherapy, that through this interaction between two humans, you can arrive at something deep and profound that's personal about your particular brain, and almost from an engineering perspective, rewire things. I think there's a lot of ways in which our work with human-robot interaction in the artificial intelligence space will teach us how to do this kind of re-engineering better. But anyway, BetterHelp is easy, private, affordable, available worldwide. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash lex. That's betterhelp.com slash lex. This show is also sponsored by Brave, a fast, privacy-preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without the ads or the various kinds of tracking that ads can do. I love using it more than any other browser, including Chrome. I also love Google Chrome, but I love Brave even more. You should uh, check out my conversation with Brendan Ike, who's a creator of Brave, but also the creator of JavaScript and Mozilla Foundation. I mean, this guy's done basically everything. But it's his work on JavaScript, actually, that's really stuck with me. In that conversation, I was reminded that change in the world doesn't have to start with a perfect solution. It can start with something to put it nicely, that's imperfect and grow, iterate over time. You don't have to start with something pretty. You just have to start. Anyway, get the browser at brave.com slash Lex and it might become your favorite browser too. That's brave.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast and now here's my conversation with Ryan Schiller. Let's start with the basics. What is Librex? What are its founding story and founding principles? And looking into the future, what do you hope to achieve with Librex? Sure, let me break that down. So what is Librex? Librex is an anonymous discussion feed for college campuses. It's a place where people can have important and unfettered discussions and open discourse about topics they care about, ideas that matter. And they can do all of that completely anonymously with verified members of their college community. And we exist both on each Ivy League campus and we have an inter-Ivy community. And actually this week we just 
open to MIT and Stanford. So now no, we have- No, really? MIT? Yes. So we have MIT and Stanford communities and I expect you to <laughs> sign up for your MIT account <laughs> and start great. posting. What are, for people who are not familiar, like me actually, which are the Ivy Leagues? Sure, so we started at Yale, which is my, I don't know, can you call it alma mater? Because <laughs> I haven't technically graduated. Yeah, um, what's that called when base? you're actually still there? My university. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess we'll home. Just call it home. That's my home. Educational home. Started at my educational home of Yale. And then we moved to, um, and we could get into the story of this eventually if you'd like. Sure. And then we went to Dartmouth. And then quarantine hit. We opened to the rest of the Ivy League. And now we have, and the Ivy League, um, for those who don't know, is Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Columbia, Cornell, Brown, and Penn. I got it all in one <laughs> breath. What's the youngest Ivy League? Penn? No. Columbia. I can't say. I, okay. I'm not on camera. <laughs> we'll edit it in post. I don't know. Yeah. I'll <laughs> okay. just say each of all, all, all eight of them, and then you can just like <laughs> get it in. <laughs> yeah. Like, Penn, Harvard. There's actually a really nice a software that people should check out, like a service. Uh, it's using machine learning really nicely for podcast editing, mm -hmm. where you can, it learns the voice of the speaker and it can change the words you said. It's like some deep fake stuff. It's deep fake, but for positive applications. It's very interesting. It's like the only deep fake positive applications I've seen. I have a friend who's obsessed with deep fakes. Yeah. What's great about, I think, deep fakes is that it's gonna do the opposite of sort of what's happening with our culture, where yeah. everyone will have plausible deniability. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's the hope for me is there's so many fake things out there that we're going to actually be much more skeptical and and think and take in multiple sources and actually like reason, like use common sense and use like deep thinking to understand like what is true and what is not. Because, uh, you know, we used to have like traditional sources like the New York Times and all these kinds of publications that had a reputation, there are these institutions and they're the source of truth. And when you no longer can trust anything as a source of truth, you start to think on your own. That gets part of the individual. That goes, that takes us way back to like where I came from, the Soviet Union, where you can't really trust any one source of news. You have to think on your own. You have to talk to your friends. Tremendous amount of intellectual autonomy, yeah. don't you think? It, think about the societal consequences. Absolutely. I mean, we see so much decentralization in all aspects of our digital lives now, but this is like, the decentralization of thought. Yes. You could say it's sadly, or I don't think it's sad, is decentralization of truth, where like truth is a clustering thing, where you have these like this point cloud of people just swimming around, like billions of them, and they all have certain ideas. And what's thought of as truth is almost like a clustering algorithm when you just get a bunch of people that believe the same thing, that's truth. But there's also another truth, and there might be like multiple truths. And it's almost, it will be like a battle of truths. Maybe even the idea of truth will like lessen its power in society, that there is such a thing as a truth. Because like the downside of saying something is true is uh, it's almost the, the downside of what people, like religious people call scientism, which is like, once science has declared something is true, you can't no longer question it. But the reality is science is a moving mechanism. You're constantly yeah. questioning, you're constantly questioning. And maybe truth should be renamed as, 
as a process, not a not a final destination. The whole point is to keep questioning, keep questioning, keep discovering. Kind of like we're going backwards in time to like back when back when people were sort of finding their identities and we were less um, globalized, right? Like people would would get together and they'd get together around common value system, common morals, and a common place. And those would be sort of these clusters of their truth, right? And so we have all these different like civilizations and societies across across the world that created their own truths. You know, we talk about the Jews and the Talmud and Torah. We can look at Buddhist texts. We can look at all sorts of different truths and how many of them get at the same things, but many of them have different ideas or different articulations. There's yeah, Harari and Sapiens rewinds that even farther back into like caveman times. That's the thing that made us humans special is who can develop these clusters of ideas, hold them in their minds through stories, pass them on to each other, and it grows and grows. And finally, we have Bitcoin. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, which money is another belief system that um, that uh, that has power only because we believe in it. And is that truth? I don't know, but it has power. And it, it's, it's carried in the minds of millions and thereby has power. But back to Librex. So what uh, what's the founding story? What's the founding principles of Librex? Sure. So I was on campus as a freshman, and I was talking to my friends. Many of them felt like it was hard to raise your hand in class to ask a question. They really felt like even outside the classroom, it was hard to be vulnerable. And the thing you have to understand about Yale is it's not that big a place. Everyone knows someone who knows someone who knows you, basically. Yeah. Um, and people come to these schools, first of all, they're home for people and they want to be themselves. They want to feel like they can be authentic. They want to make real friendships. And second of all, it's a place where people go for intellectual vitality to explore important ideas and to grow as thinkers. And fortunately, due, due to the culture, my friends expressed that it was very difficult to do that. And I felt it too. And then I go and talk to my professors and I remember I talked to one specific global affairs professor and I was taking his class and his area of expertise was in the Middle Eastern conflict. And I went to him and I said, professor, we've, we're almost finished this class and we haven't even gotten to sort of the reason I originally wanted to take the class was to hear about your perspective on the Middle Eastern conflict. Because something I'd learned at Yale, and this is maybe a sort of a tangent, but I'll, I'll flesh it out a bit. Something I'd learned at Yale is that you can learn all sorts of things from a textbook and what you kind of go to Yale to do is to get like the opinions of the experts that go beyond the textbook and to have those more in-depth conversations. And so that's sort of the added value of going to a place like Yale and taking a course there as opposed to just reading a textbook. But also interact with that opinion. Exactly. In person, yeah. To interact with that, with that opinion, to hear it, to respond to it, to push back on it, and to have that with some great minds. And there really are great minds at Yale. Don't get me wrong. It's a place, it's still a place of tremendous brilliance. Yeah. Um, so I'm talking to this professor, right? And I'm like, we haven't, I haven't heard your area of expertise. And I'm like, are we going to get to it? What's the deal? And he, this is during office hours, mind you. So we're one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. He says, Ryan, to be honest, I used to teach this area every single year. In fact, I would do a section on it, which is like a small seminar, like breakaway from the class where he would talk to the students in small groups and explain his, and explain his perspective, his research, and have a real debate about it, like around a Harkness table. And um, he said, I used to do this. And then about two years ago, a student reported me to the school and I realized my job was at risk. And I realized the best course of action was basically 
just not to broach the topic. Um, and so now I just don't even mention it. And he's like, you can say whatever you want, but I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of it. And it's a real shame. It's a real loss to all of the students who I think came to the school to learn from these brilliant professors. In that context of these world experts, the problem seems to be that reporting mechanism where there's a disproportionate power to a complaint of a young student, a complaint that an idea is painful or an idea is disrespectful to, you know, or ideas creating an unsafe space. And uh, the, the conclusion of that, I mean, I'm not sure what to do with that because it's a single reporting, maybe a couple, but that has more power than the idea itself. And that's strange. I, I don't know how to fix that in the uh, administration except to fire everybody. So like this is to push back against this uh, storyline that academia is somehow fundamentally broken. I think we have to separate a lot of things out. Like one is you have to look at faculty and you have to look at administration. And uh, like at MIT, for example, the administration uh, does tries to do well but they're the ones that often lack courage. They're often the ones who are the source of the problem. They, when people criticize academia, and I'll just speak to, my, to, my, to myself, you know, uh, I'm willing to take heat for this, is they really are criticizing the administration, not the faculty, because the faculty oftentimes are the most brilliant, the, the boldest, thinkers that you think, whenever you talk about, we need like the truth to be spoken, the faculty are often the ones who are in the possession of the deepest truths in their mind. And in, in that sense, and they also have the capacity to truly educate in the way that you're, you're saying. And so it's not broken, like fundamentally, but there's stuff that like needs that's not working that well. It needs kind to be fixed. My, you kind of took my words. That's what I, that's what I thought you were going to ask me if I think the Ivy League is broken. And that's <laughs> totally, that's exactly it. So you don't think, yeah. So on the question, do you think the Ivy League is broken? Like what, how do you think about it? Uh, the academia in general, I suppose. But Ivy League still, I think it represents some of the best qualities of academia. Yeah, what more is there to say there? I think the Ivy League is tr producing tremendous thinkers to this day. I think the culture has a lot that can be improved but I have a lot of faith in the people who are in these institutions. I think, like you said, the administration, and I, I have to be a little careful because, um, you know, I've been in some of these committees um, and I, I, I've talked to the administration about these sorts of things. Um, I think they have a lot of stakeholders and unfortunately it makes it difficult for them to always serve these brilliant faculty and the students in the way that they would probably like to. Yeah, okay, so this is me speaking, right? The administration, I know the people, and they're oftentimes the faculty holding positions in these committees, right? Yes. But it's in, in the role of quote-unquote service, they, uh, they're trying to do well. They're trying to do good. But I think you could say it's the mechanism is not working, but I could also say my personal opinion is uh, they lack courage and one, courage, and two, grace when they walk through the fire. So courage is stepping into the fire and grace when you walk through the fire is like maintaining that like, like 
as opposed to being rude and insensitive to the lived quote unquote experience of others or like, you know, just not eloquent at all. Like as you step in and take the courageous step of talking and saying the difficult thing, doing it well, like doing it skillfully. So both of those are important, the courage and the skill to communicate difficult ideas. And they often lack them because they weren't trained for it, I think. So you can blame the mechanisms that don't, that allow 19, 20 year old students to have more power than the entire faculty. <laughs> or you could just say that the faculty need to step up and grow some guts and, and skill of graceful communication. And really administration. Well, the, yeah. And the administration, that's right. That's the administration. Because the faculty are sometimes some of the most brave, outspoken people. Yes. Within the bounds of their career. Yeah. So uh, so that, that takes a, that's like the founding kind of spark of a fire that uh, led you to then say, okay, so how can I help? Yeah, and I explored a lot. I explored a lot of options. I wrote many articles to my friends, talked to them, and I realized it sort of needed to be a cultural change. It sort of needed to be bottom-up, grassroots. Um, something, I knew the energy was there because you just look at the most recent institutional assessment from Yale. This was basically the number one thing that students, faculty, and alumni all pointed to, to the administration, was cultivating more conversations on campus and more difficult conversations on campus. So the people on campus know it. Um, and you look at a Gallup poll, 61% of students are um, on Ivy League campuses afraid to speak their minds because of the campus culture. Um, the campus culture is causing a sort of freezing effect on discourse. Can you pause on that again? So yeah. what percentage of students feel afraid to speak their mind? 61% nationally. And you're talking about, you know, places, nothing like uh, the Ivy League, where I'd say, I'd imagine it would be even worse because of just the way that these communities kind of come about and the sorts of people who are attracted or are invited to these sorts of communities. Um, that's nationwide that college students, and, and it's going up, that college students are afraid to say what they believe because of their campus climate. So it's a majority. It's not It's not a conservative thing. It's not a liberal thing. It's a group thing. We're all feeling it. The majority of us are feeling it. And basically just, it doesn't even, you don't even necessarily need to have anything to say. You just have a fear. <laughs> That's right. So when you're like teaching, you know, metaphor is a really powerful thing to explain, you know, and there's just a caution that you feel that's just horrible for humor. Now, comedians have the freedom to just talk shit, which is why I really appreciate uh, somebody who's been a friend recently, Tim Dillon, who has, who gives zero, uh, pardon my French, fucks <laughs> about anything, which is very liberating, very important person to just tear down the powerful but you know, inside the, the academia, as a as an educator, as a teacher, as a professor, you don't have the same freedom. So that fear is felt, I guess, by a majority of students. It's um, that's and you were getting here. at something there too, which is that um, if you're afraid to speak metaphorically, if you're afraid to speak imprecisely, it can be very difficult to actually think at all and to think to the extremities of what you're capable of. Because these are the th these are the mechanisms we use when we don't have quite the precise mathematical language to quite pinpoint what we're talking about yet. This is the beginning. This is the creative step that leads to new knowledge, and so that really scares me. Is that 
if I'm not allowed to sort of excavate these things, these ideas with people in the sort of messy, sloppy way that we do as humans when we're first being creative, are we how, are we going to be able to continue to innovate? Are we going to continue to be able to learn? And that's what really starts to scare me. So you've explored a bunch of different ideas. You wrote a bunch of different stuff. Uh, how did Liebworks come about? It basically came to me that it had to be kind of a grassroots movement and it had to be something that changed culturally. And it had to be relatively personal, people meeting people, people finding out that, no, I'm not the only one on campus who feels this way. I, I feel alone, and there are a lot of other people who feel alone. I, I, I believe this thing, and it's not as unpopular as I thought. You know, the basically creating heterodoxy of thought, and it's creating that moment where you realize that your politics are personal and that your politics are shared by a lot of people on campus. And so I just started coding it. I, I, I didn't have much coding experience, but uh, went headfirst in and uh, figured how hard could it be, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is really fascinating. So I, I talked to a lot of software engineers, AI people. Obviously that's where my passion, my uh, like interests are. Uh, my focus has been throughout my life. The fascinating thing about your story, I think it should be truly inspiring to like, people that want to change the world is that you don't have a background in programming. You don't have even uh, maybe a technical background. So you saw a problem, you explored different ideas, and then you just decided you're going to learn how to build an app, like without a technical background. Like you didn't try to, <laughs> I mean, that, that's so bold. That is so beautiful, man. Um, can you take me through the journey of of deciding to do that, of like learning to program without a programming background and yep. building the app, like detailed, like what do you actually, like how do you start? <laughs> sure, I mean, you want to uh, you want to buy a Mac, I learned, and you had to buy a Mac. I'll, I'm just gonna go step by step, right? I'll be as dumb as possible okay. because it was, it was truly, it was truly, you know, yeah, like leading by your feet. So you need a computer for this. Well, yeah, I had a PC at the time, uh, and uh, I was Android at the time. And I realized, you know, I, I realized it should be like an iOS app. And so, um, you know, that was a decision. But, you know, I knew kids these days, they're always on their phone. And, you know, I wanted you to be able to say a passing thought, you know, in class, make a passing, like you're walking around and you have a thought and you can express it. Or you're in the dining hall and you have your phone out, you can express it. So it was clear to me it should be an iOS app. By the way, yeah, Android is great. Definitely check out. We also are now available on Android, but we'll get there um, for the Android users from MIT, Stanford, or the Ivy League. So back to how it happened. So I realized I need a Mac. So went out and got a Mac. Um, And I realized I need an iPhone for testing eventually. Got an iPhone. Um, So those were the real robot blocks to start with. Um, from there, I mean, there's, there's almost too much information out there about programming. The question is like, what, where do you start and what's going to be useful to you? And I, 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 my first thought was I should look at some Yale classes, but it became very clear very quickly that that was not the right place to start. Um, that would probably be the right place to start if I wanted to get a job at Amazon, but my goal was slightly different. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely had it in mind that what I was trying to make was I'm trying to prove out an idea. I'm not trying to make a finished product. I'm just trying to get to the first step. Because I figured if I keep if I keep getting to the next step, at least I won't die now, you know? Like yeah. at least things will move forward. I'll learn new things. Maybe I'll meet new people. 
I'll show a degree of seriousness about what I'm doing and things will come together. And that is, as you'll see, what ends up happening. Um, so I start with Swift, right? And I find this video from the Stanford professor that had like a million views that was like how to make basically Swift apps. Like perfect. And you just like, uh, so you got this Mac and you what, like go to google.com and you type in. Download Xcode. And then, Xcode. Yeah, and then I type in on YouTube like Stanford, iOS, Swift, enter <laughs> first youtube video has a million views i'm like it has to be good at stanford has a million views <laughs> yeah. uh, i got lucky he, he i mean that turned out to be a very good video and it's basically like introductory course to swift yeah i mean you say introductory i think most of the people in that class um probably had a much better background than i did They're software developers probably yeah like computer scientists and it was slow for me um I, I don't think I realized it fully at the time, just how far behind I was from the rest of the class. Cause I was like, wow, seems like people are picking this up really quickly. <laughs> um, so it took a little longer and you know, a lot of time on Stack Overflow, but eventually I made a truly minimal viable product, the most minimal. Like we're talking, you know, put text on screen, add text to screen, comment on top of text, you know, make a post, mm -hmm. um, make a response. And anyone with a Yale email can do this, and you plug it into a, ser a cloud server, and you verify people's accounts, and you you're off. You have so you have to figure out how to like the whole idea of like having an account. So there's a permanence. Like you can create an account with an email, verify it, verify it. Okay, so that that's not you know, and that's literally how I thought about it, right. Like, so what do I need to do? And I'm like, well, first thing I need is a login page. Yeah. And I'm like, how to make a login page in Swift? I mean, it's that easy. If someone, this has been done before, of course I- And then I, the first page that pops up was probably a pretty damn good page when you- It Google wasn't it. that bad. It wasn't perfect, but like maybe it got me 80% of the way there. Yeah. And then I came into some bugs and then, you know, I asked Stack Overflow a few questions and then I- got a little further and then I found some more bugs and then I'm like maybe this isn't the right way to do it. maybe I should do it this way and yeah I'm sure my code isn't great but the goal isn't to make great code the great wasn't the goal wasn't to make scalable code it was to understand is this something my friends will use like what is the reaction going to be if I put it in their hands and am I capable of making this thing and that's awesome and so you're focusing on the uh, the experience like actually just really driving towards that first step Figuring out the first step and really driving towards it. Of course, you have to also figure out like concept of like storage, like database. You know something funny? What's that? I just made the database structure with no knowledge of databases whatsoever. And I start showing it to my friends who have an experience in CS and they're like, you used a heap. That's so interesting. You're like, <laughs> yeah. why did you decide to store it in this way? I'm like, bro, I don't even know what a heap is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just did it because it works. Like... I'm trying to make calls and stuff. And they're like, uh, yeah, they're like, the hierarchy is really like, and I'm like, what? <laughs> well, th there's a deep, profound lesson in there that uh, I don't know how much you've interacted with computer science people since, but they tend to optimize and have these kind of discussions. And what leads, what results is over-optimization. It's like worrying, is this really the right way to do it? And then you go, as opposed to doing the first thing on Stack Overflow, you go down this like rabbit hole of what's the actual proper way to do it. And then you're like, you wake up five years later working on Amazon, uh, working on Amazon <laughs> because you've never finished the login page. Like, it's kind of hilarious, but that that's a really deep lesson. Like, just get it done. And and there's like, what what's a heap, bro? <laughs> is, is the right, that should be a t-shirt. Uh, 
that that's really the right approach to building something that ultimately creates an experience and then you iterate uh, eventually. That's how the great some of the greatest software products in this world have been built, is you create it quickly and then just iterate. What was, by the way, in your mind, the thing that you were chasing as a prototype? Like, what what was the first step that it feels like something is working? Like, is it you interacting with another friend? Yeah, I think the first step was like, it's one thing to tell someone about an idea, but it's another thing to put it in their hands and kind of see like the way their their eyes kind yeah. of look. Yeah. Um, and when I'd go, I'd, I'd walk around cross campus, which is part of Yale, and I'd literally just go up to people and run up to them and be like, try this, try this, you got to try this. This is, is pre-quarantine, by the way, of course. Yeah, this yeah, would never yeah. be the same post-quarantine, <laughs> but like, you got to try this, you got to try this. Like, what is it? And I'd be like, and I'd explain, it's like an anonymous discussion feed for the, for our Yale campus. Yeah. And you'd see their gears turning and they just, some people would be like, not interested. Yeah. I'm like, fine, not your target demographic. I get it. You'll come eventually. Um, but some people, like, you could see it. They got it. They're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I was like, okay, okay, there is, and you don't need, I mean, you don't need 50% of people to like it. Yeah. You need what? 5%, 10% to love it. And then they'll tell 5%, 10%. Yeah, yeah word of mouth. Yeah. And you're good. Um, of course, the first version was very, very crappy, but seeing people trying despite all the crappiness wasn't it was sort of enough to be the first step. And you know, since since then, all of my code's been stripped out. I now um, have friends who basically have told me, "Don't bother with the coding part. Yeah. You do you do the rest. You just make sure that we can code because they want to code." Of yeah. great. I mean, I'm not an engineer. Yeah, I never intended to be an engineer, and there's a lot to do that's not engineering. Yes, but the point was just to validate the idea, so to speak. When was the moment that you felt like we've created something special? Maybe a moment where you're proud of that this is a this is this has the potential to actually be the very uh, implementation of the idea that I initially had. There's so many. There's so many little moments. It's like, and I bet there'll still be moments in the in the future that make that make it hard to like totally say like yeah we should say this is a, this is still very early years of librex <laughs> yeah it's, it's literally only a, it's only been a year since we've had like actual like a lot of people on the app yeah about a year oh wow okay i mean there's some crazy moments i could talk about sort of going to dartmouth because it's one thing to like get some traction at your school yeah people know you and you know it's it's your school you know it's another thing to go to another school and where no one knows you and sign up 90% of the campus overnight. Wow. So to tell me that story. You're invading another territory. It was literally like that. <laughs> Did you buy it like a Dartmouth sweatshirt? <laughs> <laughs> it, purposefully, I didn't want to defraud any, fraud anyone, but yeah. I was purposefully nondescript in my okay. clothing. Yeah. No Yale stuff, no Dartmouth stuff. Um, just blend in. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll go back there. So what happened was, this was like March of last year. Um, so almost almost a year ago today. And I really wanted to see if we could go from sort of one campus to two campuses. So I didn't know anyone at Dartmouth campus, but I kind of had some cold emails, some warm-ish emails. Um, and I went to people and I was like, basically, can I sleep on your floor for two days? 
during finals period. Yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of people who said, this is crazy. Like no one's gonna, no one wants to download an app during finals period, a social app during yeah. finals period. But I emailed a few people and I was like, you know, can I sleep on your floor? And one of them was crazy enough to say, sure, come to my, come to my dorm. I'll, <laughs> I have a nice floor. Um, and he ended up today. He's still really close. He's a really close friend. But anyway, I take a train knowing nothing about this guy besides his first and last name. And I arrive and Dartmouth is really, really remote, way more remote than you think to the point where I'm like, he's like he warned me he's a really hospitable guy he warned me like it's gonna be hard to get to campus from the train station because it's really remote and i'm like i'm sure it's fine i'll just get an uber there are no ubers in hanovers (laughs) (laughs) what do you think this is new New hampshire so uh connecticut i mean uh yale is pretty remote as well no yeah yale is um well i mean yale's in new haven which is a real city it has ubers it has food it has (laughs) culture it has a nightclub even yeah like we're talking about a real city like it's not new york it's not philadelphia where i'm from but it's a city uh new hampshire is something very different yeah beautiful campus i'm sure beautiful oh my gosh i could tell i could talk so much about i was blown away by dartmouth i i started wondering like why i didn't apply (laughs) (laughs) legitimately um between the people and the culture it was it was a it was a beautiful vacation so i arrived there no uber but eventually I call this guy who's like the only guy who can get you to Dartmouth and takes a couple hours, but we get there. I sleep on this guy's floor. I wake up. I ask him if there's any printing. He's like, oh, Dartmouth happens to have free printing in the copy room. Um, I print out like 2,000 posters <laughs> until the guy in the copy room literally goes to me. He's like, kid, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to get out of here. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, all right, don't, don't, I'm going, I'm going. Um, I found just, the limits. I know, yeah, I found the limit. Um, and I think a lot of startups is about finding the limits. <laughs> Maybe that's a little piece of advice yeah. Um, socially. Yeah. He's like, you got to get out of here. And I, um, I then go to every single dorm door. I put a poster under every single dorm door advertising the app with a with a QR code. Yeah. I awesome. walk around campus saying hi to everyone and telling them about the app. I go from table to table in the cafeteria, introduce myself, say hi, and tell them to download the app. It's an exhausting. They so many steps, so many crouching down to slip the poster under the dorm door. My legs were burning. Um, but by the end of it, you know, 24 hours later, I'm sitting on a, I'm sitting in a bus and I'm just pressing the refresh button on the account creation panel. It's like going up by hundreds. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> There's the word of mouth happening. is working in a sense. I mean, certainly your like uh, initial seed is, uh, is just powerful. A, just a piece. Yeah. But then the word of mouth is what uh, carries it forward. And what was the explanation you gave to the app? It's uh, is anonymity a fundamental part of it? Like saying, this is a chance for you to speak your mind about your experiences on campus. Yeah, I think people get it. You don't need to, you, what I've realized is you don't need to tell people why to try it. Yeah. They know. Yeah. It, it, they, There's you, a hunger for this. Exactly. Yeah. You, so I all I do is I'm very factual. I said, and this is where I kind of ended up coining the kind of, the line that I now used to say it because I said it so many times in those 24 hours. I just said it's an anonymous discussion feed for Dartmouth. And they're like, yes. <laughs> like they've been waiting for it. You know, some people are more skeptical, yeah. but a lot of people were like, great. I'm excited to try this. I'm excited to meet people and connect. And I mean, the way Dartmouth's taken to it is incredible. Everything from 
<laughs> professors writing poems during finals period to be like, um, good luck in finals period, you're going to rise like a phoenix or whatever. To like, yeah, it's crazy. To, I heard about uh, two women meeting on Librex and starting a finance club um, at Dartmouth to significant others um, meeting. Uh, There's an article recently written up at Yale as well about two queer women who met on Librex and started a relationship, which was pretty, it was pretty interesting to see. People throwing parties pre-COVID. Um, yeah, it was just amazing to see how when you allow people to be vulnerable and social, they connect. They People have this natural desire to connect. Yeah, when, when you have, when they have a natural desire to have a voice, and then when that voice is, is uh, paired with freedom, that you could truly express yourself. And there's something liberating about that. And in that sense, uh, you're like, you're connecting as your true self, whatever that is. What are the most powerful conversation you've seen on the app? You mentioned like people connecting. The hard part of that, that is the sorting, you know, figuring out sorting. which one, which one am I going to put at the top? M- mental sorting out. I, just something yeah. to stand out to you. Sorry. I don't mean to do like the top 10 conversations ever of all time ever on the app. I just mean like stuff that you remember that stands out to you. I remember this one really amazing co- comment from this. He was a Mexican international student who spoke out and he, this, this, this post was super edgy, but yet it got hundreds and hundreds of upvotes within the Yale community. It was a Yale community-specific post. And we should point out that there's a school-specific community now, and there's an all-Ivy community. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was specifically in the Yale community. And this was a little while ago, but it stuck with me. This Mexican um, international student comes to Yale, and he starts talking about his experience in the um, La Casa, which is the Mexican Latinx, as they would say, cultural center at Yale, and how he doesn't feel welcome there because he's Roman Catholic, basically, and international, and how he doesn't feel like he fits with their agenda. And as a result, this place that's supposed to be home for him, he feels outcasted in and feels more alone than he does anywhere else on campus. That's powerful. Yeah. That was powerful to me. Yeah, hearing someone, someone who should be feeling supported by this culture say actually this is not doing anything for me like this is not helping me yeah this is this is not where i feel at home so what do you make of anonymity because it seems to be a fundamental aspect of the power of the app right but at the same time anonymity on the internet uh, so it protects us, right? It gives us freedom to have a voice, but it can also bring out the dark sides of human nature, like trolls or people who want to be malicious, want to hurt others purely for the joy of hurting others, being cruel for fun and going to the dark places. So like, what do you make of anonymity as a fundamental feature of social interaction, like the pros and the cons? Yeah, just to break that down a bit. I would say a lot of those same things about a place like Twitter where people are very unanonymous. Um, Having said that, of course, there's a different sort of capacity people have when they're anonymous, right? In all all different sorts of ways. So what do I make of anonymity? I think it can be incredibly liberating and allow people to be incredibly vulnerable and to connect in different ways, both on politics. And there was a lot to talk about this year regarding politics Mm -hmm. and, you know, personally, being vulnerable, talking about relationships and mental health. I think it allows people to have a community that's not performative. 
And of course, there's this other side where, you know, people can sometimes break rules or say things that they wouldn't otherwise say that people don't always agree with or that people might find repugnant. And to an extent, these can facilitate great conversations. And on the other hand, we have to have moderation in place and we have to have community guidelines to make sure that the anonymity doesn't overwhelm the purpose, which is that anonymity, first of all, anonymity is a tool in Librex. It was not the purpose of Librex. It is a way that we get towards these authentic conversations given our campus climate. And second of all, I would say it's a spectrum. It's not just... It's not just Librex is anonymous, right? Um, because Librex isn't totally anonymous. Everyone's a verified Ivy League student. You know exactly what school everyone goes to. You only have one account per person at Yale, meaning if, um, meaning that, I mean, what that amounts to is people have more of an ownership in the community and people know that they're connected and they have a common vernacular. So the anonymity is a scale and it's a tool. But you can also trust, I mean, this is the difference between Reddit anonymity, where you can easily create multiple accounts. When you have only one account per person, or at least it's very difficult to create multiple accounts, then you can trust that the anonymous person you're talking to is a human being. Not a bot. I try to be completely unanonymous uh now in my all public interactions i try to be as real in every way possible like zero gap between private me and public me why exactly did you it seems like this is an intentional mission what made you want to sort of bridge that gap between the private sphere and public sphere because that's that's unique i know a lot of intellectuals who would make a different decision yeah, interesting. I had a d- discussion about with Naval about this actually, when, with a, with a few others that have a very clear distinction between public and private. Something I'm struggling with, by the way, personally, and thinking about. So, one on the very basic surface level is uh, if you carry with yourself lies, small lies or big lies it's extramental effort to remember what you, uh, like to remember what you're supposed to say and not supposed to say. So that's on a very surface level of like, it's just easier to live life when you have the smaller, the gap between the private you and the public you. And the second is, I think for me, from an engineering perspective, like if I'm dishonest, with others, I will too quickly become dishonest with myself. And in so doing, I will not truly be able to think deeply about the world and come up and build revolutionary ideas. There's something about honesty that feels like, it's that first principles thinking that's almost like overused as a term, but it feels like that requires radical honesty, not radical asshole-ishness, but radical honesty with yourself, with yourself. And I feels like it's difficult to be radically honest with yourself when you're being dishonest with the public. And also I have a nice feature, honestly, that um, in this current social context, so we can talk about race and gender and uh, what, what are the other topics that are touchy? Ethnicity and um, nationality. All those things, I mean like. Family structure. I, maybe I'm ineloquent in the way I speak about them, but I honestly, when I look in the mirror, like I'm not 
deeply hateful of a particular race or even just hateful a particular race. Um, I'm sure I'm biased and I've tried to like think about those biases and so on. And also I don't have any creepy shit in my closet about women. Like <laughs> I haven't done, it seems like everybody, uh, I, it seems like a lot of people got, like did a lot of creepy stuff in their life. <laughs> and I, I just feel like that's uh, really nice and deliberating. And especially now, you know, it's funny because I've gotten a bit of a platform and uh, I think it all started when I went, this is a, a famous comedian, female comedian, Whitney Cummings. And, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of amazing women writing me throughout. But when when I went on Whitney, it was like the number of DMs I get on Instagram <laughs> from women, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And uh, I think that was a really important moment for me is like, I speak and I feel, you know, I really value love long-term monogamy with like one person. And it's like, I could see where a lot of guys would now continue that message in public and in private just start sleeping around. And so like, that's an important statement for me mentally. He's like, nope. <laughs> straight and narrow. <laughs> just go straight and, and not out of fear, but out of like principle and just like live life honestly. And I just, I, I feel like that's truly liberating. Uh, as a human being, forget public, all that, because then I feel like I'm on sturdy ground when I say uh, difficult things. And at the same time, this is, sorry, I'm, I'm ranting on this, I apologize. I'm interested personally, <laughs> so keep going. <laughs> I, I honestly believe in the internet, in, in people on the internet, that when they hear me speak, they can see if I'm full of shit or not. Like I won't be able to fake it. Yeah. Like they'll see it through. Uh, yeah. I. <laughs> so like, I feel like if you're not lying about stuff, you have the freedom to truly be yourself, and the and the internet will figure it out. Like we'll figure who you are. And uh, people have a natural tendency to be able to tell bullshit, and it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Exactly. Like why? Why wouldn't? Why like? Of all the things that we could evolve to be good at, being able to detect honesty seems like one that would be particularly valuable, especially in the sorts of societies we developed into. And then also from a selfish perspective, like a success perspective, I think there's a lot of folks that have inspired me, uh, like the Elon is one of them, that shows that there's a hunger for genuineness. Like you can build a business as a CEO and be genuine and like real and do stupid shit every once in a while, as long as it's coming from the same place of who you truly are. Like Elon's inspiration with that. And then there's a lot of other people I admire that are counter inspirations in the sense like they're very formal, they hold back uh, a lot of themselves. And it's like, I know how brilliant those people are. And I think they're not being as effective of leaders, public faces of companies, as they could be. I mean, to be honest, like not to throw shade, but I will, it's like Mark Zuckerberg is an example of that. Uh, uh, Jack Dorsey's also a bit of an example of that. I like Jack a lot. I've talked to him a lot. I will talk to him more. I think he's a much more amazing pe person than he conveys through his public presentation. I think a lot of that has to do with PR and marketing people having an effect. Listen, it's difficult. I think it's really difficult. It's probably many of the same difficulties you will face is the pressures 
Um, but it's it's hard to know what to do. But I think as much as possible as an individual, you should try to be honest in the face of the world and the company that wants you to be more polished. And that being more polished turns into a politician and politician eventually turns into being dishonest. Dishonest with the world and dishonest with yourself. Something I noticed, which was the people of the people you mentioned, those things have had ra ramifications in terms of letting things go too far, get out of hand. And you wonder like, it's an aspect of lying, right? You say one lie, goes to another lie, you push it down, Does, doesn't matter, you can talk, figure, figure it out later, you can figure it out later. Pretty soon, you've dug a pretty big hole. And I yeah. think if we look at Twitter and we look at Facebook, I think it goes without saying what sorts of holes have been dug because of, perhaps because of a lack of honesty that goes all the way up to the leaders. So yeah, there's two problems. Within the company, it, it doesn't make you as effective of an, a leader, I think. That's one. And two, for social media companies, I think people need to trust, like it doesn't have to be the CEO, but it has to be one, like, this is how humans work. We wanna look to somebody where like, I trust you. <laughs> if you're going to use a, a social media platform, I think you have to trust the set of individuals working at the top of that social uh, social something i realized really quickly one of the lessons throughout the startup was that people don't totally connect to products as much as they connect to people yeah and beautifully put i mean i i don't know if you've how much you spent on Librex. you've only been here the last couple weeks like last week but I mean, I love the product, and one of the one of the aspects of me loving the product is that I was super active, and I've been super active <laughs> throughout the entire time. Yeah. And the amount of support I've received has made that very easy to do. Yeah, um, from the community and the fact that I could. I mean, so I came to Boston for this interview, right? Yeah, I came to Boston. I got off the train. Yeah, it was around five thirty p.m. I checked Librex. Someone is writing, hey, I'm in Boston. Does anyone want to get dinner? Yeah. 30 minutes later, we're, I'm getting Damn. dinner with them. That's amazing. And I mean, it, it's incredible. First of all, as an entrepreneur, the amount of stuff I learn from these people and, the, and when they reiterate and I hear that they got the message through the product, I mean, that's incredibly validating. But also, I mean, I think it's just important to be able to put a face to a brand and especially a brand that's built on trust. Mm -hmm. um, because fundamentally, the users are trusting us with some really important discussions and some really, um, and a movement to some degree. It's a community and a movement. I'll, I'll tell you actually why I didn't use the app very much uh, so far is uh, th there's something really powerful about the way it's constructed, which I felt like a bit of an outsider because I don't know the communities. It felt like it's, like it's a really strong community around each of these places. Yeah. And so I felt like I was, I, it made me really wish there was an MIT one. <laughs> and so there's both discussions about the deep like community issues within Columbia or Yale or so on, uh, Dartmouth. And there's also the broader community of the Ivy Leagues that people are discussing. But I could see that actually expanding more and more and more, but which is, it's a powerful coupling just the feeling of like this little village or this little community we're building together, but also the broader issues. Yeah. So you could do both discussions. One thing that was important to me is talking about social media as a concept, right? 
I think the way people socialize is very much context dependent. So we're t- we're talking about people understanding each other through language, through English. Yes. And these languages are constructed very in a very nuanced way, in a very sort of temperamental way, right? And you kind of need a similar context to be able to have productive conversations. Mm-hmm. So to me it's really important that these these groups they share people something in common, a really big lived experience, the Ivy League or their school community. And they have a similar vocabulary. They have a similar background. They know what's happening in their community. And so having social media that is community connected to me was fundamental. Like you talk about anonymity. To me, community is the is the thing that I, when I think about Librex, I think what makes it different. It's the fact that everyone, everyone knows what's going on everyone comes from a similar context and people can socialize in a way where they're, they understand each other because they're been through, you use the word lived experience. They've been through so many of the same lived experiences. Uh, One like clarification, is there an easy way if you choose to then connect in in meet space and physical space? So the, I guess the sort of magic of it and I was talking to a bunch of Harvard Librexers who I met off the app while I was in Boston. And um, every time they told me this is the fa- my favorite part of the app, this is what I love about the app. We have this matching system, which is an anonymous direct message that you can send to any poster. So like I was talking to this guy who um, he was really into coin collection and he met other people who were really into coin collection through a post and what they, he would make a post about coin collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone would come to him and they'd be like, and, and they, they could direct message him anonymously and it would just show them that his, it would just show him their, their school. Mm-hmm. And then they could just text chat totally anonymously, direct message if he accepted the anonymous request. Do they see the usernames, right? Um, there are no usernames on Librex. It's all just schools names. So he made this post about coin collection and he really? got a direct message. Yeah, I guess so, right? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> No user. Because I was just looking at the text. Yeah. That's interesting. That's right. And I can tell you, I can go into why. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, I can go into why. So it truly is anonymous. It's, well, I mean, but what you mean by anonymous. Exactly. It's it's a very different kind of anonymous. And the reason reason that we made that decision is because we wanted people to connect to ideas. We wanted people to connect to things in the moment. We don't want people to go, Oh, I know this guy. He said this other thing. And we didn't want people to feel like they were at risk of being doxxed. So it's just, these are small communities, right? Yeah. We talked about this. Everyone knows someone who knows you. Yeah. And um, in 2021, it would not take much to be able to figure out who someone might be just through a couple of posts. Um, so it's both safety and about the ideas in terms of not adding usernames. Anyway, we have this anonymous direct message system where you can direct message the original poster of any post, the OP, if you're a Redditor, um, of any post. And you that, that makes it really easy to meet up because once you guys are one-on-one, you can exchange a number, you can exchange a Snapchat, you can exchange an email. <laughs> that's yeah. Probably not very often, but yeah. you could. And then that's how people meet up, matching. And then a lot of people connect in this way. Uh, yeah. Let me let me step, take a small step into the technical. I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true, that uh, one of the reasons you were rejected from YC, Y Combinator in the final rounds is because one of the principles is to refuse to sell user data. 
Uh, can you speak to that? What's, uh, what, why do you think it's important not to sell user data? And sort of that, which draws a clear contrast between other, basically any other service on the internet. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, it's quite simple. I mean, we talk about this platform, people are talking about their most intimate secrets, their political opinions, you know, what, how, how are they feeling about what's going on in their city, you know, during the summer? Um, how, how are they feeling about um, the, the political cycle and also their mental health, their relationships? These are some of the like most intimate thoughts that people were having. Point blank, I don't think it was ethical to pawn them off for a profit. I didn't think it was moral. I don't think I could sleep at night if, if that was what I was doing, is turning these people's most intimate beliefs and secrets into a currency that I bought and sold. There's something very off about that. Yeah. I tend to believe that there is uh, some room so like like Facebook would just take that data and sell it, right? But there's some room in transparency, giving people the choice on which parts they can, I wouldn't even see it as sell, uh, but like share with advertisers. Are you gonna give them a profit? Um, so right, so you have to monetize, you have to create an entire system, you have to rethink this whole thing, right? But if as long as you give people control and are transparent and make it easy, like I think it's really difficult to delete a Facebook account or like delete all your data it's, or to download. I've tried, it's very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so like just make it easy and trust in that if you create a great product, people are not going to do it. And if, if they do it, then they're not actually something about a deep loving that. member of the community. What's that? <laughs> um, so we very quickly realized that user privacy was something that um, was not only a core value, but was something that users really cared about. Yeah. And we added we added this functionality. It's just a button that says, forget me. Yeah. Um, you press it, Yeah. like two clicks. Um, it's not I that hard. That. We just remove your email from the database. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're good. Beautiful. I think Facebook should have that. I, I honestly, so call me crazy, but I, maybe you can actually speak to this, but I don't think Facebook... Well, now they would, but if they did it earlier, they would lose that much money. If they allow, like transparently tell people, you could just delete everything. They also explain that like in ways that's going to potentially like lessen your experience in the short term, like explain that, but then there shouldn't be like multiple clicks of a button that don't make any sense uh, I, I'm uh, trying to hold back from ranting about Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> because let me just say real quick, because I've, I've been locked out of Instagram for a month. Uh, and there's a whole group inside Facebook that are like supporters of like Lex, free, help Lex. Free Lex? Free Lex. Uh, I wasn't blocked. It was just like a bug in the system. Somebody was hammering the API with my account. Mm -hmm. And so they kept thinking I'm a bot. Anyway, it's a bug. It happens to a lot of people, but like, First of all, I appreciate the love from all the amazing engineers on Instagram or Facebook. Love those folks. The entire mechanism though is somehow broken. I mean, that I, I put that on the leadership, but it's also difficult to operate a large company once it scales, all those kinds of things. But it should not be that difficult to do some basic, basic things that you want to do, which is 
Um, in the case of Facebook, that's verify your identity to the app. Uh, and also in the case of Facebook, in the case of Librex, like become like disappear. It, if you if you choose, there's downsides to disappearing, but it should not be a difficult process. And um, yeah, I think I think people are waking up to that. I think there's a lot of room for an app an app like Librex with its the, with with its foundational ideas to redefine what social media should look like. You know, and like you said, I think beautifully, anonymity is not the core value; it's just a tool you use. And who knows, maybe anonymity will not always be the tool you use. Like if you give people the choice, who knows what this evolves <laughs> from the login page that you initially created. The key thing is the founding principles. And again, who knows if you give people a really nice way to monetize their data, maybe there'll no longer be a thing that uh, you say, do not sell user data. Yeah, all those kinds of things, but the, the, the basic principles should be there and also, a good simple interface design um, <laughs> is goes goes a really long way. Like simplicity and elegance, which Librex currently is. Clubhouse is gotten a lot apps. better, by the way. It's I don't, gotten, I don't mean to, uh, I, I don't mean to go too deep into the history, but the um, it was bad. It was. I didn't look at the early pictures. Oh, thank goodness. I I, I read somewhere that it was like a white screen. Like with black, like there were, HTML the basic and downvote buttons were like these big these big freaking boxes and like i don't i don't I, I could go on but um it was my it was my genius design skills um i almost Minimalism. failed art class when i was like in first grade and i think uh i still have similar skills to my first grade self but uh it's gotten a lot better and thanks to a lot of my friends who have you know sort of chipped in here and there <laughs> oh i love the idea of a button that just like forget me um yeah i don't know that's that's really moving actually that uh, that's actually all people want is they they want, I think, uh, okay, I'll speak to my experience. Like I would give so much more if, uh, if I could just like disappear if I needed to. And I trusted the the community. I trusted like the, yeah. the founders and the principals. That's really, that's really powerful, man. The, like trust and ease of escape. Yeah. Uh, you've also kind of mentioned moderation is really interesting. So with this anonymity and this community, I don't know if you've heard of the internet, but there's trolls on the internet. So I've heard. <laughs> and uh, even if they go to Yale and Dartmouth, uh, they, there's still people that probably enjoy uh, the, the sort of being the the guerrilla warfare counter-revolutionary and just like creating <laughs> chaos in a place of uh, love. So how do you prevent chaos from and hatred uh, breaking out in Librex? So the way I think about it is we have these principles. Um, they're pretty simple and they're pretty easy to enforce. And then beyond the principles, we have a set of moderators, moderators from every single Ivy League school, team of diverse moderators who enforce these principles, but not only enforce the principles, but kind of clue us in to what's happening in their community and how the real life context of their community translates to the Librex context of their community. And beyond that, we have conversation with them about the standards of the community. And we're constantly talking about what needs to be further elucidated and what needs to be tweaked. And we're in constant communication with the community. Now, 
if you want me to get into the principles that underlie Librex's moderation policy. Yeah, please, maybe you can explain that there's moderators. What does that mean? How are they chosen? And what are the principles under which they operate? Sure, so how are the moderators chosen? The moderators are all volunteers. They're Librexers who reach out to me and respond to the opportunity to become moderator. And the way they're chosen um, is basically, we wanna make sure that they're in tune with their community. We wanna make sure they come from diverse backgrounds and we wanna make sure that they're, they sort of understand what the community is about. And then we ask them some questions about how they would deal with certain scenarios, ones that we've had in the past and we feel strongly about. And then also ones that are a little more murky where we wanna see that they're sort of thinking about these things in a critical way. Yeah. Um, and from there we choose a set and, uh, they have the power to um, take down posts. Of course, everything at the end of the day pens my review, but mm. they can take them down and we can reinstate them if it's a, if it's a problem. But they can take down posts and they can advocate for you know different moderation standards and different moderation policies. So for now, you're the Linus Torvald of this community, and uh, so meaning like you're able to, like people are actually able to like email you or like text me <laughs> text you contact you and get a response like you respond to basically everybody and then you're you're like really you know you're you're living that live on people's floor life currently that's not necessarily this is the early days folks <laughs> i knew ryan before he was a billionaire and he was cool and then he was in a mansion uh making uh meats on his barbecue no okay <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know, how does it scale? Um, like what, I, I suppose, how, how does it scale is the question. I mean, with Linus, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the Linux open source community, but he still stayed at the top for a while. It was really important, like leadership there was really important to drive that large scale, really productive open source community. What do you see your your role as Librex grows and, um, in general, what are the mechanisms of scaling here for moderation? The way I see it, open discourse is fundamental to the purpose of the app, right? So as the, I guess you could say, founder, CEO, what have you, um, part of my purpose has to be to enforce the vision, right? And part of the vision is open discourse. And that does come down in part to reasonable moderation and community-guided reasonable moderation. So I imagine that will always be something that I'm intimately involved with to some degree. Now, the degree to which, the way in which that manifests, I imagine will have to change, right? Yeah. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to, just like you can hire a CTO, hopefully I'll be able to be in, integrated in hiring people who are who understand the the way that we are sort of operating and the and the reasonable standards of moderation and there can be a sort of hierarchical structure. Mm. But I think when you have a product whose key purpose is to allow people to have these difficult conversations on campus that need to be had. Yeah, that I can never core to that, yeah. I can never fully, I don't think I can fully ever abdicate that responsibility. I think it, that would be like, I mean, that would be like Bezos abdicating e-commerce, right? Right, like that is, yeah. that's part of the job. Yeah, of course you can run companies in different ways. I think that because he might have abdicated quite a bit 
of, of the details there. It's hard for me to say. Because the Amazon does so many things. I think the, probably the better example is like Elon with rockets. He's still at the core. Of the engineering. He, he's at the core of the engineering. There's some fundamental questions. Of what, he probably does way too much of the engineering. Like he's like the lowest level detail. But you're saying like the core things that are, that make the app work is, is the moderation of difficult conversations. And by the way, I'm 21 years old. Let's, yeah. let's remind us, everyone, of that. Um, if this thing does scale yeah. and if this thing continues to be a positive force in a lot of people's lives, who knows what will, what will happen in the next, what I'll learn. Um, I'm still growing, definitely as a leader, still growing as a thinker, still growing as a person. I don't, I, I can't pretend that I know how to run a, business that is worth you know up to billion dollars whatever yeah i can't pretend i know how to run a business that's you know going to have millions and millions of users i, I expect that there are going to be a lot of amazing people who will teach me and a lot of people who have already kind of stepped into my life and helped me out and taught me things and i imagine that i'll learn so much more i just know that moderation is always going to be important to me because I don't think Librex is Librex unless we have open discourse and moderation. Reasonable, open, light touch moderation is at the heart of creating that, right? So as a creator of this kind of community in place with anonymity and difficult conversations, what uh, what do you think about this touchy three words that people have been tossing around and politicizing, I would say, but is at the core of the founding of this country, which is the freedom of speech? How do you think about the freedom of speech, this particular kind of freedom of expression? And uh, do you think it's a fundamental human right? How do you define it to yourself when, you, when you're thinking about it? I've, uh, I went down, especially preparing for this conversation, down a rabbit hole of like, just how unclear it is <laughs> philosophically what is meant by this kind of freedom. Uh, it's not as easy as people think, but it's interesting, pragmatically speaking, to hear what, how you think about it in the context of Librex. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? There's a lot there. So I come from the background of being a math major. <laughs> Maybe it's important to start with that. Yeah. And I found myself um, in the middle of this question of freedom of speech. <laughs> one, one of the wonderful things is that uh, the Librex community is filled with PhDs and governance majors who have taught me a ton about this start sort of thing. And I'm still learning, I'm still growing, I'm still probably going to um, modify my perspective to some degree, hopefully. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, I imagine I'll always um, support free discourse. Like learning yeah. how to speak about stuff is is uh, is critical here because it's like, I'm, I'm learning that this, this is like a minefield of conversations. Because the moment you say like, even saying freedom of speech is a complicated concept. People will be like, oh, we spotted a communist. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they'll say, there's nothing complicated about freedom. Freedom is freedom, bro. It's, it, it, it is complicated. First of all, if you talk about, there's there's different definitions of freedom of speech. Uh, if, if you, if you want to go constitution, if you want to talk about the United States specifically and what's legal, it's actually not as exciting and not as, uh, uh, beautiful as people think of. Complicated. It's, it's, it's complicated. I think there's ideals behind it that we wanna see what does that actually materialize itself 
in a digital world where we're trying to communicate in ways that uh, allows for difficult conversations and also at the same time doesn't result in the silencing of voices, not through like censorship, but through like just assholes being rude. Spam. Spam, so it could be just bots. Racism. Uh, racism. Go, going back to the name of the app, Librex. Yes. Libre, free. Um, X was support Montu for free exchange. And the free exchange of what? My purpose was to create as many, as much intercommunication of ideas, be them repugnant or otherwise as possible. And of course, to do that within legal bounds and to do that without causing anyone to be harassed or doxxed. So to keep things focused on the ideas, not the people. And then no BS crap, you know, stuff. And so to me, the easiest way to moderate around that, because as you said, figuring out what is hateful and what is hate speech is really hard, was to say no sweeping statements against core identity groups. And that seems to work on the whole, pretty well to be pretty light touch, and you it's know, hard to do though. It's it's difficult. We like to generalize. We humans. It's difficult, but what it comes down to is be specific. Yeah. Um. And when you think about what are sweeping statements against core identity groups, right? Oftentimes these are these are sort of hackneyed subjects. These are things that have been broached and we've heard them before. They don't really lead anywhere productive. Mm-hmm. So we so it goes under this principle of be specific in the ideas you're discussing. So even for like positive and humorous stuff, you try to avoid generalizations. Against core identity groups. Core identity groups. Sorry, what are core identity groups? We're talking, you know, race, religion. Okay. Got it. Even positive stuff? Well, against, negative. Against, sorry, against, against, okay. Very, very, we've learned to be very specific. <laughs> very few words, but the community gets it, you know? Yeah, they get it. I mean, this is the thing. They, they, um, the, the, the trouble with rules is uh, as the community grows, they'll figure out ways to manipulate the rules. Absolutely. It's human nature. It's creativity. Yeah. Something beautiful about it, of course. <laughs> Unlike in... From an evolutionary perspective, yes. Yeah, the fact that people are so creative and so looking to... And because people are genuinely interested in figuring out these things about social media. And so they'll 100% like see like, where's the edge? And I mean, part of that's maintaining some level of vagueness in your rule set, yeah, which has its own set of questions and something we could think about. And I'm not implying I have all the answers, but there is something really interesting about people being so engaged that they're looking to figure out where are those edges and what does that mean? What does that edge mean, you know? Well, so one of the things I'm kind of, thinking about like from an individual user of Librex or an individual user of the internet. I think about like that one person that uh, is on Reddit saying hateful stuff or positive stuff, doesn't matter, or funny stuff. One of the things I think about is the trajectory of that individual through life and how uh, social media can help that person become the best version of themselves. I don't mean from like an Orwellian sense, like educate them properly or something. I just mean like, we're all, I believe we're all fundamentally good. And I also believe uh, we all have the capacity to do, to create some amazing stuff in this world. 
whether that's ideas or art or engineering, all those kinds of things, just to be amazing people. And I kind of think about like, you know, a lot of social media mechanisms bring out the worst in us. And I try to think like, in the long term, how can uh, the social media or how can a website, how can tool that you create can make the best, like you take a trajectory that makes you better, better and better and like the best version of yourself. So I think about that because like, you know, Twitter can really take you down some dark trajectories. I've seen people just not being the best version of themselves. Forget the cancel culture and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, they're not developing intellectually in the way that's going to make the best version of themselves. I think Reddit, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about Reddit yet. Because uh, one positive side is all the shit posting on Reddit could be just like a re release valve for, for some stress in life. And you almost have like a parallel life where in your in meat space, you might be actually becoming successful and so on and growing and so on, but you just need sometimes to be angry at somebody. But I tend to not think that's possible. I think if you're shit posting, you're probably not spending your time the best way you could. I don't know. I am I'm torn on that. But do you think about that with Librex of creating a trajectory for the for the Yale, for the Dartmouth, for the students to where they grow intellectually? One thing that I think about a lot is how do you incentivize positive content creation? How do you incentivize well put yeah. really intellectual content creation? It's something that frankly, you know, I think about every single day. And I think there are ways that, I mean, one thing that's great about humans is that they can be incentivized, right? And I think there are ways that you can incentivize people to make the right kind of content, if that's your goal. So you and think such mechanisms exist for such incentivization? I do. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, sure. so to speak. So, so you much. have already idea, like concrete ideas in your mind. And I have about I, three concrete ideas that I'm very, very optimistic about. Yeah. And you don't even need to share them. The the fact I, I understand totally, but like the fact that you have them, that's really good. Because I feel like sometimes the downfall of the social media is that there's literally not even a thinking or a discussion about the incentivization of um, positive long-term uh, content creation. I mean, Twitter, I really was excited about this when they said like, when Jack has talked about like creating healthy conversations. Yeah, he does seem to care. I've listened to him. I mean, he's very, he has a very particular way of saying things, mm -hmm. but you get the impression that he's someone who actually cares about these things within the limits of his power. Yeah, and that's the question, the limits of the power. Librex is growing not just in the number of communities, but also in the way you're incentivizing positive conversations, like coupled with the moderation and so on. So you think there's a lot of innovation to be had in that area? I think there's a tremendous amount. I think when you think about the reasons people post, fundamentally people want to make a positive impact on their community to some degree. Now there'll always be bad actors and part of the benefit of sort of our moderation structure is that we can limit some of them ba those bad actors, you know, no bot accounts, no brigading. At the same time, the more you incentivize a certain type of behavior, the better it's going to be. And it's we don't see it as our role as the platform to 
force the community in in a direction. And frankly, I don't think it would be good for anyone, the community or the conversations, if we forced a specific type of conversations, uh, conversation. We just need to make the tools to allow people to be good yeah. and to incentivize good behavior. Yeah, I believe that. Like if you you don't need you will not need to censor if you allow people at scale to be good. The good will overpower the assholes. That's that's my fundamental belief. I, I'm very optimistic about that. But currently Librex is small in the sense that it's a, it's a small set of communities, the Ivy League. And you mentioned to me offline that by design you're scaling slowly. That's and right. Carefully. So how does Librex scale? Is it possible? You know, Facebook also started with a small set of communities that were schools and then now grew to be basically the, if not one of the largest social networks in the world. Do you see Librex as potentially scaling to be beyond even college campuses, uh, but encompassing the whole world? It's a, it's a long timeline. <laughs> I'll say this. This gets back to like, where did Facebook go wrong? Because clearly they did a lot right. And we can only we can only speculate about what the objectives were of the founders of Facebook. Um, you know, I'm sure they've said some things, but it's always interesting to know what the what the uh mythology is versus what the truth is of the matter. Um so perhaps they and they've been very successful. I mean, they they've taken over the world to some extent. At the same time, the goals of Librex are to create these positive communities and these open conversations where people can have real conversation and connection in their communities in a vulnerable and authentic way. And so to that end, which I imagine might be different than the goals of a Facebook, for example, one thing that we want to do is keep things intimate and community-based. So each school is its own community. Mm -hmm. And Perhaps you could have a slightly broader community. Maybe you could have a, I know uh, the California system is an obvious one. Pack time might be an obvious one. And we can think about that. Um, but fundamentally the unit, the unit of community is your school or your school community. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's one difference that I think will help us. The other thing is that we're scaling intentionally, meaning that when we expand to a school, we have moderators in place we have moderators who understand that school's environment in a very personal level and we're growing responsibly. We're growing as we're ready, both technologically, but also socially, you know, but as we think we have the tools to um, preserve the community and to encourage the community to create the sort of content that we want them to create. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to define community. So first of all, there's geographic community as well. Uh, But the way you're kind of defining community with Yale and, and uh, Dartmouth is the email, right? That's what gives you, there's a power to the email <laughs> in the sense that uh, that's how you can verify, efficiently verify yourself of being an, a single individual in the university. In that same way, you can verify your employment at a company, for example, like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, do you see her uh, potentially taking on those communities? That'd be fascinating, getting like anonymous community conversations inside Google. 100% crossed my mind. To some extent, this is this is something where 
I understand the college experience. I understand the need. Got it. And I've, I've never, I've never worked at Google. I don't know if they would hire me. <laughs> um, hopefully, maybe as a product manager. <laughs> uh, I think if there's a community that needs this product and has that and and has that will, which I think, especially as Librex continues to grow and expand and change and learn, and because that's what we're doing is we're learning, right? With each community, it's not just about growing; it's about learning from these from each of these communities, and iterating, um, I think it's quite likely there are going to be all sorts of communities that could use this tool to improve their culture, so to speak. So forgive me, I'm not actually like th that knowledgeable about the history of attempts of building social networks to solve the problem that you're solving. Uh, but I was made aware that there was an app, uh, app or at least a social network called Yik Yak, uh, that was had a similar kind of um, focus. Um, I think the thing you've spoken about that differs between LibreX and Yik Yak is that Yik Yak was defined, am I pronouncing it right even? Uh, You're good. <laughs> I'm good. I met the founder, so I can confirm. Okay, you can confirm, cool. Uh, <laughs> the That it was constrained to a geographical area versus like to the actual community uh, and that, and that somehow had fundamental, like actual differences in social dynamics that resulted. But can you speak to the history of Yik Yak? Like, how does Librex differ? What lessons have you learned from that? Oh, and I should say that I guess there was controversial. I'm, I don't know. I didn't look at the details, but I'm guessing there's a bunch of racism and hate speech and all that kind of stuff that Absolutely emerged. There was on Yik Yak. Okay, so that's an example of like. Okay, here's how it goes wrong when you have anonymity on college campuses. So how does Librex going to do better? Yeah, you got a lot of problems, content problems, but the content problems go deeper than maybe what the press would reveal. There's a lot to say, and okay. part of it is parsing exactly what to talk about when it comes to Yikek. And when you talk about startups, I mean, you know this, I, I, I you, you know startups, um, and you look at the postmortem; it's almost never what people think it is, and yeah. and oftentimes these things are somewhat unknowable. And the 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 degree to which people seeking confirmation bias to somebody who's seeking closure, yes, look to find a singular attribute that caused the failure. It feels like the little details often make all the difference. Yes, and I think I think the details are so little that as humans we are not capable of parsing even what they are, but. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you my perspective on it, um, knowing that I am also a human with biases. Um, <laughs> in this particular case, very significant biases. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, um, so I started building Librex for its own merits. I, 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 at first, I wasn't aware of Yik Yak, but as I started to talk to people about this platform I was building, I, I, I was made aware of Yik Yak, and I built it from day one with a lot of the issues Yik Yak had in mind. The so as you said, the di one difference between Yik Yak is the geographical versus community-based aspect. Going along with that, one thing I realized by researching social media sites is that the majority of the negative content, the content that's terrible and breaking all the rules, is created by really and the people who are not ref reformable, so to speak, the people yeah. who are 
not showing the best part of the human yeah. <laughs> experience. Yeah. Um, it's a really small minority, right? Yeah. I remember I was listening to the founder of 4chan Moot talk about this, how like one guy was able to basically destroy like large swaths of his community. Yeah. That's part of what makes it exciting for that minority is how much power they can have. So if, if you're predisposed to think in this way, it's exciting that you can walk into, like I mentioned the party before, you have a party of a lot of positive people and it feels, especially if you don't have much power in this world, it feels exceptionally empowering to just, to, to, uh, to destroy like the lives of many. Yeah. Uh, and if you think this way, it's a problem. But I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful that you're right. That in most cases, it's going to be a minority of people. I think it is, and that's what the research has showed. And one really powerful thing is that we can really actively control who comes in and out of our community based on the .edu verification, and we can also control who's not in our community because we have that lever where each account is associated with a .edu. Um, so that's the first point I would put out, point out there. Second point is controlled expansion, meaning that we have community moderation. We have this panel that allows the moderators to see all of the highly downvoted co content, all of the reported content, all the flagged content and look through it and decide what they like and what, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And we have, um, we ping every moderator when there's a report. So things are taken down pretty quickly. And we have our standards and we have, I think above all of that, we have a mission and it's a community-based mission. Yuk was more of a fun app and by its own admission, it was a place where people could enjoy themselves and mm -hmm. could sort of yak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yak you know, chit chat. Um, we have a we have a bigger purpose than that, frankly. And I think I think that shows in the people who self-select to be on that app, to be on Librex and to be on Yik Yak, respectively. The last thing I'll say is Yik Yak was very few characters. It was a Twitter-esque platform. Mm. And that doesn't allow for a tremendous amount of nuance. It doesn't allow for a tremendous amount of conversation. Um, Librex is much more long form. And so the kind of um, posts that you'll get on Librex are, can span pages. They're like, what people are starting to realize is that they can reach a lot more people at a lot more pertinent of a time, a lot more quickly by posting their thoughts on Librex than if they went to their school newspaper. And I think the school newspapers might be a little worried about that. But more importantly, we're connecting people in this way where long-form communication with nuance that takes into account everything that's happening in the community temporally is really available at Librex and, you know, not really communicable in 240 or 480 or whatever the number of characters the acts were um, bound to. And then, you know, I could talk about the history of Yik Yak if you want me to go further. Um, they started, I think they were at 12 schools and then spring break hit. Um, people told their friends, look at this app. A thousand schools signed up and were had active communities. They had a problem on their hands. I see. And then the high schools come on board. Yeah. I think a lot of the things you said uh, ring true to me, but especially the vision one, which I do think uh, having a vision in the leadership, having a mission makes all the difference in the world. Uh, that That's both for the engineers that are building, 
like the team that's building the app, the moderation and the users, because they kind of, the mission carries itself uh, through the behavior of the uh, of the people on the social network. As a small tangent, let me ask you something about um, Parler, but it's less about Parler and more about AWS. So AWS removed Parler from its platform, you know, for whatever reasons doesn't really matter. But the fact that AWS would do this was really, really bothered me personally because um, I saw AWS as the computing infrastructure. And I always thought that part could not put a finger on its scale. And I don't know what your thoughts are, like were you bothered by uh, Parler being removed from AWS and how does that affect how you think about the computing infrastructure on which uh, Librex is based? I was bothered not so much by Parler specifically being taken out of AWS, but more the fact that something that's like a highway something that people rely on, that people build on top of, that people assume is going to be somewhat position agnostic, um, like a road that people drive on, is is becoming ideologically sort of discriminatory. Mm-hmm. I just, and of course, mind you, Amazon can do what it wants. It's a private company. And I support the rights of private companies. I just, on an ethical and sort of a deep moral level, I wonder, like, at what point should a company sort of be agnostic in that in that regard and let developers build on top of their infrastructure and where 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 does that responsibility hold yes yeah, it makes you uh hope that there's going to be from a capitalistic sense competitors to AWS would say like we're not going to put our finger on the scale i mean on the high, highway is a good sort of example it's like if a privately owned highway exactly said uh you know, we're no longer going to allow, we're only going to allow electric vehicles. And a bunch of people in this world would be like, yes, because electric is good for the environment. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, but then you have to consider the like the, the slippery slope nature of it, but also like the, the negative impact on the lives of many others and what that means for innovation and for like, uh, competition again in the capitalistic sense. So there's some nature, there's some level to this hierarchy of our existence that we should not allow to manipulate what's built on top of it. It should be truly infrastructure. And it feels like compute is uh, storage and compute is the that layer. Like it shouldn't be messed with. Um, I, I haven't seen anybody really complain about it, like in terms of government. And I'm not even sure government is the right mechanism through policy and regulation to step in. Because again, they do a messy job of fixing things. But I do f- hope there's competitors to AWS that make a- AWS and step up. Because I, I do think, you know, I'm a fan of AWS, except this. Good service. It's a good service <laughs> until this. Until, yeah, until they rip out the the rug. And the point is, it's not that necessarily their decision was a bad one with Parler in particular. It's that like the the slippery slope nature of it, but also the it takes the good actors that are creating amazing products and makes them more fearful. And when you're more fearful, it's the same reason that anonymity is a tool that you don't create the best thing you could possibly create. When you're fearful, you don't create. That's right.
I think we kind of talked about it a little bit, but I wonder if we can kind of revisit it a little bit. Um, I talked to a guy named Ronald Sullivan, who's a faculty at Harvard, law professor. He was um, on the legal defense team. He was the lawyer for Harvey Weinstein and Aaron uh, Hernandez for the double murder case. So he takes on these really difficult cases of un unpopular figures because he believes like that's the way you test that we believe in the rule of law. But he was, uh, there's a big protest in Harvard to get him, uh, basically censor him and uh, to get him to no longer be faculty dean, all those kinds of things. And uh, it was by a minority of students, but, uh, and there was a huge blowback obviously in the public, but also inside Harvard, like that's not okay. He stands for the very principles at the founding of Harvard and at the principles of the founding of this country and the law and so, so on. But the, the basic argument is that, is was about safe spaces, that it's unsafe to have somebody who is basically supporting Harvey Weinstein, right? Um, what do you think about this whole idea of safe spaces uh, on college campuses, because it feels like the the mission of Librex is pushing back against the idea of safe spaces. I think safe spaces are fine when they're within people's private lives, within their homes, you know, within their religious organizations. I think the problem becomes when the institution starts encouraging or um, backing safe spaces, because what are people being safe from? And oftentimes it seems like there's this idea that the harm that's being attempted to, to be mitigated is the harm of confronting opinions you disagree with, opinions you might find repugnant. Right. And if this is conflated with a need for safety, then that's where the idea of liberal arts education sort of dies. Um, of course, it's complicated and we still want to have safe intellectual environments. But the way that I hear the term safe space used today, I think it doesn't really have a place within like the intellectual context. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, th this is why Librex is really exciting is it's pushing those difficult conversations and I'd love to see, ultimately there does seem to be an asymmetry of power that results in the concept of safe spaces and hate speech being redefined in a slippery slope kind of way where it means basically anything you want it to mean. And uh, it basically is used to silence people, to silence people that are like good, thoughtful experts. Also yeah. beyond that, I would say it has not just a pragmatic purpose, which is the silencing, but also sort of an ideological purpose, which is, and a linguistic purpose, which is to conflate words with unsafety and harm and violence, which is what you kind of see on a, on a cultural linguistic level is happening all around us right now is that this idea that words are harm is a very dangerous and slippery concept. I mean, it's not, you don't have to slip that far to see why that's a problem. Once we start crim, crim making words into violence and we start criminalizing words, we get into some really authoritarian territory. Things that I think, I mean, myself and my background. I don't know how much we have to go into it, but uh, things in my, that my ancestors certainly would be worried about. 
What's your background? I'm a child of Holocaust survivors and pogrom survivors. So, yeah, I mean, me as well, from different directions. I come from the Soviet Union. So there's, uh, well, like in most of us, hate and love uh, runs through our blood from our history. You mentioned MIT is being added to Librex. Has it already been added? Yes, it was added um, today. Today, okay. So let me ask you, this is exciting, because um, I don't know what your thoughts are about this, but I'll tell you from my perspective, if you're, and a lot of MIT folks listen to this, I would love it if you joined Librex. It'd be interesting to explore conversations on several topics inside MIT, but one of the most moving that hasn't been discussed at all except in little flourishes here and there, is the topic of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, there's been a huge amount of like impact that uh, the connections of various faculty to Jeffrey Epstein and the various things that have been said had on MIT. But it feels like the difficult conversation haven't had been ha had it's the administration trying to clean up and give a bunch of BS to, tr to try to pretend like, let's just hide this part. Like nothing is broken, nothing to see here. Here's a bad dude that did some bad things and uh, some faculty that kind of uh, misbehaved a little bit because they're a little bit clueless. Let's, let's all look the other way. Harvard did this much better, by the way. They, they completely... <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like people pretend like Harvard didn't have anything to do with Jeffrey Epstein. But I think I'd be curious to to hear what those conversations are because uh, the, there's conversations on the topic of like, uh, well, obviously sort of sexual assault and disrespecting women on any kind of level within academia, but just women in general. That's an important topic to talk about, very many sets of difficult conversations. And the other topic is, uh, you know, funding uh, for research. Like how are, like what are we okay taking money from and what are we not okay taking money from? You know, a lot, there's a lot of just interesting, difficult conversations to be had. I've uh, worked with people who, you know, refuse to take money from DOD, Department of Defense, for example, because in some indirect or direct way, you're funding military industrial complex, all those kinds of things. I think with Jeffrey Epstein, it's even more stark, this contrast of like, well, what is and isn't ethical to take money from? And I just think, forget academia, I think there's just a lot of interesting, deep human discussions to be had, and they haven't been. And there's been somebody, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Weinstein, who has been outraged by the fact that nobody's talking about Jeffrey Epstein. Nobody's having these difficult conversations. And Eric himself has had a sort of complicated journey through academia uh, in the sense that he's a really kind of renegade thinker in many kinds of ways. I'm not sure if you know who Eric is by any chance. Heard the name. Okay. I actually uh, checked out Zev. Zev. It was heartening <laughs> for me to see that I was not the youngest person <laughs> on this, on this <laughs> You're the, podcast. The second youngest. Second youngest. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but but Eric has he's kind of a renegade thinker. He's a 
mathematical physicist uh, with, I believe, a PhD at Harvard, and he spent some time at MIT and so on. But he he speaks to the fact that sort of there's a culture of conformity and so on. And if you if you're somebody who's a bit outside of the box, a bit weird, and whatever dimension of weird that makes you actually kind of interesting, that the system kind of wants to make you an outcast, wants to throw you out. And so he kind of opposes that whole idea. So he's the perfect person to have conversations with in this kind of Librex kind of context of uh, anonymity, because. Uh, I'll tell you the few conversations that came across and they were very quickly silenced. And I'm troubled by it. I'm not sure what to think of it. Is There's a few um, threads inside MIT, like on a mailing list, discussing uh, Marvin Minsky. I don't know if you know who that is. He's an AI researcher. He's a seminal figure in AI before your time, but one of the most important people in, art, in the history of artificial intelligence. And uh, there was a discussion on a on a on a thread that involved uh, the interaction between Marvin Minsky and Jeffrey Epstein. That conversation was quickly shut down. Uh, one person was pushed out of MIT, Richard Stallman, who's one of the key figures in the because of that, because he wanted some clarity about the situation. But he also mis he spoke like we mentioned earlier without grace, right? But he was quickly punished by the administration uh, because of a few people protesting. And just that conversation, uh, I guess what bothered me most is it didn't continue. It didn't, it didn't expand. There was no like complexity and, and it was there was a hunger that was clear behind that conversation, especially sort of for me. I'd like to understand Marvin Minsky was one of the one of the reasons I wanted to come to MIT. Uh, he's, he's passed away, but he's one of the key figures in the field that I deeply care about art, artificial intelligence. And I thought that his name was dragged through the mud uh, through that situation, and without ever being like resolved. And so it's unclear to me, like, what am I supposed to think about all this? And and the only way to come to a conclusion there is to keep talking. It's like the thing we started this conversation with about truth is like, is conversation. So in that sense, I'd, I'd love uh, if people on Librex, perhaps in other places, but it seems like Librex is a nice platform to discuss Marvin Minsky, to discuss Jeffrey Epstein, to learn from it, to grow from it, to see how we can make MIT better. As uh, I'm still one of the people, I've always dreamed of being at MIT, and it was a dream come true in many ways. And I still believe that MIT is one of the most special places in this world, like many other universities. Universities in general is truly special, man. I, I you know, I, it hurts my heart when people speak poorly of academia. I understand what they mean; uh, they're very correct. But there is much more, in my opinion, that's beautiful about academia, and that's broken. I mean, I don't know if uh, you have something to comment. It doesn't necessarily need to be about Jeffrey Epstein, but there's these difficult things that come up that test the academic community, right? That it feels like conversation is the only way to resolve it. I think people have a natural need for closure. And yeah. it's not just... I'm not as plugged into the what academics are talking about as you would be, Lex. But I even... Kids very, these days, no respect for Minsky. I'm just exactly. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> especially in the AI, AI community. I'm, uh, I'm not not necessarily like a programmer. Um, but what I will say is that um, people come to LibreX and we always see a huge spike in users whenever there's like a tragedy on campus or something where people need closure. Um, recently, there was a suicide just the other day um, on Yale's campus and people were just coming to pay respects and to say rest in peace and speak also about what might have led to an environment where people are drawn to these terrible results. Um, so just having a conversation is important there because it like it brings people closure. Need, people need the space, especially when no one wants to go out and put their head above, you know, be the longest blade of grass on that one. Yeah. Because of the stigma. Yeah. People need to be able to speak. Yeah, that fear really bothers me. The fear that silences people. Like, where they self-censor? where they self-silence? Well, I'm, uh, you've created an amazing place. I, I'm kind of interested in your struggle and your journey of creating positive incentives. Because uh, it's a problem in a very different domain that I'm also interested in. Um, so I, you know, I love robo uh, robotics. I love human-robot interaction, and so I believe that most people are good, and we can bring out the best in human nature. Social networks is a very tricky space to do that in. So I'm glad you're taking on the problem, and I'm glad you have the mission that you do. I hope you succeed. But uh, you mentioned offline that you used to be into chess. Tell me about your journey through chess. Sure. I was a very competitive tournament player growing up till about like 13. I got, for the chess fans, I got to around 2000 um, USCF. So I was a competitive player, especially my age group. And um, that actually led me to poker. I was, um, I was playing a tournament. And what happens is when you're like a very strong 13-year-old and you're playing locally, if you want a good match, you're going to end up playing a lot of adults. And I ended up playing this... Um, mid-40s guy who we played a really strong game he actually beat me i i still i still remember the game and and think oh, i could i should have played that move instead of that one but after after the game we had a post-mortem it was this me i think i was 13 at the time and this 40 year old like hanging over this chessboard and yeah. looking over the moves and even at that even at my age it occurred to me that this guy was absolutely brilliant yes and after after the post-mortem not only by the way in chess but just like in the way he articulates his thoughts as some people are um, after the postmortem, I went and looked him up online and I found out that he was a World Series of Poker champion. <laughs> and Who is it? His name is Bill Chen. Oh, wow. And I haven't really kept up with him except one time there was another chess tournament when I was around 14. And I followed him into an elevator as he was leaving the chess hall, like pretending that I was going to go up just because I wanted to, I just wanted to talk to him. And I suggested a sequel or some changes that he could, that I thought he should make for his book. And he was like, actually, I was thinking of doing the same thing, <laughs> which is incredibly validating to my 14 year old or 15 year old self. Um, but I really haven't kept up with him. So it's so a shout out to him. But, and then that he wrote a book called The Mathematics of Poker at, that I started reading. And that first of all, kickstarted my interest in game theory. And second of all, in poker. Um, so it started from chess and then poker. And I started with Bitcoin poker and had a lot of success with that. Met a lot of amazing friends. Um, learned a ton about, I mean, I think about entrepreneurship as well as taking risks, reasonable risks, positive expected value risks. 
and um, also just growing as a person and mathematician. And what's did you say Bitcoin poker? Yeah. What's Bitcoin poker? So you have to understand, I was 14 years old, right? Yes. So how is a 14 year old with wonderful parents who care about him yeah. and probably don't want him playing poker? Yeah. Um, going to start playing poker because I wanted I wanted the challenge. I, I love the challenge. I love the competition. And I realized the answer was probably Bitcoin because the implications of that. And uh, they had they had these uh, free roll tournaments, which for those of you who don't know what free rolls are, there's these promotional tournaments that sites put on where they'll put like a few dollars in and then thousands of people sign up and the winners get like a dollar. And I started there and I worked my way up. And That's amazing. What's your sense about from that time to today of the growth of the cryptocurrency community? I'm actually having like four or five conversations with Bitcoin proponents, Bitcoin maximalists, and like all these, other, I'm just having all these cryptocurrency conversations currently because there's so many brilliant, like technically brilliant, but also financially and philosophically brilliant people in those communities. It's fascinating with the explosion of impact, like, and also if you look into the future, the possible revolutionary impact on society in general. But what's your sense about this whole growth of Bitcoin? I'm definitely less uh, knowledgeable on the currency. Again, like programming, it yeah. was a means to an end. Yes, right. Got it. Um, what I will say is that there was this amazing community that grew out of it, and you'd have people who were willing to stake me or have me be their horse and they're my backer mm -hmm. for having never met me for literally full Bitcoin tournaments, like full Bitcoin entry fee tournaments. And I get a percentage of the profits and they get a percentage. And to have that level of community for that degree of money, I mean, it, gi it gives you hope about the potential for, you know, humans to act in mutual best interest with a degree of trust. Yeah, there's a really fascinating, strong community there. But speaking of like bringing out the best of human nature, it's a community that's currently struggling a little bit uh, in terms of their ability to communicate in a positive, inspiring way. Like yeah. the Bitcoin folks, and we talk about this a lot. They, um, I, th I honestly think they have a lot, a lot of love in their hearts and minds, but they just kind of naturally because the world has been like institutions and uh, the centralized powers have been sort of mocking and uh, fighting them for many years that they've become sort of worn down and cynical. And so they tend to be a little bit more aggressive and negative on the internet in the way they communicate, especially on Twitter. And it's just created this whole community of basically being derisive and mocking and trolling and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But people are trying to, you know, as the, as the Bitcoin community grows, as the cryptocurrency community grows, they're trying to revolutionize that aspect too. So they're trying to find the positive core and grow uh, and, and grow in that way. So it's, it's, a, it's fascinating because I think all of us are trying to find the positive aspect of ourselves and trying to learn how to communicate in a positive way online. It's like the internet has been around. Social networks haven't been around that long. We're trying to, we're trying to figure this thing out. Uh, let me ask you the ridiculous question. Uh, I don't know if you have an answer, but who is the greatest chess player of all time in your view? So since you like chess, you depends talk on how you define it. But if you're talking about raw skill, like if you put everyone across time into a tournament together, yeah, 
Um, Carlson would win. I don't think that's particularly controversial. Oh, you mean like with the same exact skill level? Exactly. Ma- Magnus Carlson. Okay. And is the object now? If you talk about political importance, I think Bobby Fischer is a. Uh, you know, he's a. He's the only one that people still. When you go to someone on the street, they know Bobby Fischer because he was because of what he represented, right? Who do you think is more famous on the street, uh, Gary Kasparov or Bobby Fischer? Bobby F- in America, Bobby Fischer. You think so? Yes. That's interesting. I think we're gonna to have to put that to the test. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's more reflective of the community that I was a part of. But yeah. Also, in the community you're part of, like Young Minds playing chess, Bobby Fischer was a superstar for, was, in terms of like yeah, the roots. I think so because he's American, and you know he stood up against the big bad Russians yes. at the time, and uh, you know unfortunately he had a very bad downfall. But um, what you know for our geopolitical situation. He meant a lot. And then if you talk about compared to contemporaries, actually, I would say Paul Morphy, who was a bit of a throwback, mm-hmm. was he's one of those geniuses that uh, was just head and shoulders above everyone else. Is there somebody that inspired your own play, like as a young mind? Yeah, I really liked Mikhail Tall. <laughs> <laughs> so like you see you were, an, I think he was very aggressive, right? Yeah, very tactical. Yeah. Um, which is funny because I am, um, I found that I was better at like sort of slow methodical play than quick tactics. But I just, I mean, there's something beautiful about the creativity. And that's something I always latched onto was being a creative player, being a creative person. I mean, chess doesn't really reward creativity as much as a lot of other things, especially entrepreneurial pursuits, mm-hmm. um, which I think is part of the reason why I sort of grew out of it. But I always was attracted to the creativity that I did see in chess. So let me ask the flips, the uh, the other, because you said poker. Is there somebody that stands out to you as uh, could be the greatest poker player of all time? Like, who do you uh, admire? That's, in a, that, in that's that a more controversial one because these chess players are such like, first of all, there's more an objective, an objective standard. And second of all, yes. there's like, they're like almost like cultural figures to me. Whereas poker players are more like live, living. They feel more like. Yeah. They, they feel more accessible. But yeah. they also have like personalities. Yeah. Like poker have like Phil Ivey they have as vices. a personality. They, they have vices, they have quirks, they have humor. Like we, I guess we've seen videos of them. Yeah. Because it's such a recent development. I'll say one person who I admire so much. And like if I, if I could like have a dinner list of people that I want to have dinner with, like maybe it'll happen now actually. <laughs> I would love to have dinner with him. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil Galfond. Um, oh, wow who I don't, most people probably won't know, Yeah. but uh, on this podcast, but the way, first of all, he democratized poker learning in like the mathematical nitty gritty, how do you get good at poker type sense to the entire world in like an unprecedented way. He was, he gave, he had this gift that he had learned and distilled by working with some of the greatest poker minds. And he just democratized it um, through his website. And, um, I learned a ton from him. And not only that, but you just listen to him think. And it's almost like a philosophical meditation, the way that he breaks things down and thinks about these different elements and has such a holistic thought process. It's like watching a genius work. And, you know, he's also just a nice, fun, sociable guy that like you can you can imagine being at your dinner table. Yeah. So. All that yeah. combined. Which is not true for a lot of poker players, right? <laughs> a um, lot of them are dark. To souls. say the least, yeah. yes. <laughs> I, I like, uh, I really like the, what is he, Canadian? Daniel Negrano. 
He's also a nice guy. He's also a nice guy, but he's also somebody who's able to express his uh, thoughts about poker really well, but also in an entertaining way. Mm -hmm. He seems to be able to predict cards better than anybody I've ever seen. Like what- uh, Did you watch the challenge? Which challenge? He he lost like a million dollars recently to uh, Doug Polk. He lost a million dollars to Doug Polk heads up online. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's awesome to watch these, these guys work. So I know you're 20, 21? 21. 21. Uh, so, so asking you for advice is uh, is a little bit funny, but uh, but at the same time not, because you've created a social network. You've created a startup from nothing, as we talked about earlier, like without knowing how to program, you've programmed. I mean, you've taken this whole journey that a lot of people I think would be really inspired by. So given that, uh, and given the fact that 20 years from now, you probably laugh at the advice you're going to give now. Absolutely. I hope so. <laughs> if I don't laugh at the advice I give now, something went desperately wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so do you have advice for people uh, that want to follow in your st- footsteps and create a startup, whether it's in the software app domain or whether it's anything else? So I'll speak specifically about social media apps. Yes. Um, try to keep it as narrow as possible so I can laugh as little as possible when I'm 41. <laughs> um, and what I would say is that if you're like a 21, 22-year-old who's looking at me and being like, I want to do something like this, um, what I would say is you probably know better than just about anyone. And if you have a feeling in yourself that this is something that I have to do, and this is something I could imagine myself doing for the next 10 years, because if you're successful, you are going to have to do it for the next 10 years. And through the ups and the downs, through the amazing interviews with Lex and through the not so amazing articles you might have with other people, right? <laughs> um, and you're going to have to ride those highs and lows and you, you have to believe in what you're doing. But if you have that feeling, what I would say is listen to as few people as possible because people are experts in, in domains. But when it comes to like, what's hot and what's what what makes sense in a social context you are the authority as a young person who's going through these things and living in 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 your sort of milieu and i mean i've talked to at this point you know so many experts experts so many investors vcs um so you're you'd be amazed at the advice i've gotten advice so, i've gotten so there's like a minefield of bad advice that's the hardest part i think for young people and it's the thing when people like i help i help yellies all the time who ask like i never turn down when a founder asks me to have a conversation i never turn it down i'm always there for them um and the number one thing i worry about is that at yale we're taught impl- implicitly and explicitly that you listen to the adult in the room, you listen to the person with the highest, you know, pay grade. And it's devastating because that's how innovation dies. And, you know. Yeah, it's intimidating to like, you talk to VC who probably made- It's worth a billion dollars. Yeah, a billion dollars. And they're going to tell you, you know, all the, all the successful startups they helped fund or or even just a successful business owner. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to tell you some advice, and it's hard psychologically to think that they might be wrong. Yeah, but you're saying that's the only way you succeed. It's the just only way to you yourself. can succeed, because if they knew what they were doing, they would have built it themselves. Um, 
And what's especially hard is people go, oh, of course, you know, I'll listen to people's, I'll listen to their advice, but I'll know why it's wrong. Yeah. And then I'll, and I'll do my own thing. And that sounds great in the abstract, but sometimes you can't always even put your finger on why they're wrong. Yeah. And I think to have the conviction to say, you're wrong and I can't tell you why, but I still think I'm right. Mm-hmm. It's a rare thing, especially at like, it's very counterintuitive. And you might even say it's hu- hubris or yeah. arrogant, but I think it's necessary because a lot of these things are, they're not things that you can really put into words until you see them in action. Like a lot of them are kind of happy accidents. Yeah, it's been it's been tough for me, like as a, as a person who, um, like I'm very empathetic. So I, when people tell me stuff, I kind of want to understand them. And it's been a painful process, especially people close to me. Basically everything I've done, and especially in the recent few years, a lot of people close to me said not to do. Yeah. And uh, like my parents too, that's been a hard one, is, is to basically acknowledge to myself that you don't know, like you you don't, that everything you're going to say by way of advice for me is not going to be helpful. Mm. Like I love my parents very much, but like, they're just like, they don't get it. Uh, and and it, as you put it beautifully, it's very difficult to put your finger on exactly why, because uh, a lot of advice sounds reasonable. <laughs> That's the worst kind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it if it sounds really good, that just means it's an earworm. Like that's like a song that you hear on the radio and then you're like, mm-hmm, you're humming it in the car and it's like, it's the same thing. The more, the, the better it sounds, the more skeptical. Yeah. Reason is a, is a bad drug. Like you should be very careful because like, you know, the things that seem impossible Every every major innovation, every major business seems impossible at birth. Uh, but even not just the impossible things. I think you know. You look at like love, for example. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to give advice to sort of point out all the ways it can go wrong, or marriage, all the divorces that people go through, all the pain of years that you go through the, the divorce, like the system of marriage, the marriage industrial complex, all the money that's wasted, all those kinds of things. But that advice is useless when you're in love. Like, the, point, uh, the point is to just pat the person on the back and say, go get him, kid. Like, uh, what is it, uh, Goodwill Hunting? I went to see about a girl. Uh, oh, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, a good movie. I love that movie. <laughs> but yeah, that that's... Uh, that took me a long time to figure out. I'm still trying to fight through it, but especially when you're young, that's hard. But uh, nothing really? in life is uh, worth accomplishing is easy. So, but I think it's really interesting you make that connection between like startup advice and like your parents because it's the exact same sort of mechanism. Where when you're young, your parents are usually like right, yeah, right. And the experts are usually right. And, you know, if you listen to them and you 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 follow their orders, you're going to go to a school like Yale. Yeah. And at a certain point, it stops making sense. And I've, I've seen my friends at Yale go down paths because they just continued listening to their parents that I know in their heart of hearts is not the right path for them. Yeah. You know what? That's how I see the, the education system. The whole point 
is to guide you to a certain point in your life, and everybody's point is different. And your task is to, at that point, to have a personal revolution and create your own path. But no one tells you that. Nobody tells you that because they're they want you to keep following the same path as they they're leading you towards. Like they're not going to say your whole job is to eventually rebel. Yeah, <laughs> that's how that's how rebellion works. You're not supposed to be told, but that is the task. They can take you just like you said, and depending who you are, they can take you really far. But at a certain point, you have to rebel. That could be getting you a know PhD. Something? That could be in your undergrad. That could be high school. So. Yeah, it could be any point. One thing that I think played a pretty pivotal role, and I've never really mentioned this. Um, he might not even know the person I'm about to tell you about um, in sort of me actually going out and making Librex was that I was taking this graduate level math class. Mm -hmm. um, I think my sophomore year. Um, and I met this, uh, I met this uh, PhD student who was also in it and had considerable citations and also startup experience. And I think he actually ended up being the CTO of a unicorn later on. Um, I've sort of lost touch with him, but we're still Facebook friends <laughs> <laughs> as, it, as it is in the 21st century. Yeah. Right? Um, so, and I was in a class and I was telling him, I really want to, I really want to make this thing, but I have no technical background. Um, and he, this guy's a computer genius. He worked under Dan Spielman at, at Yale. So, <laughs> Yeah. He's a good guy, right? And we were doing some math together. Um, we were doing something on discrepancy, uh, for those of you who really care about math, uh, so combinatorics. Um, and uh, he just turns to me and he's like, I think you could do it. I'm like, what do you mean I, you think I could do? He's like, I think you could do it. Yeah. And I was like, really? But I respected this guy so much. Um, his name was Young Duck. Um, shout out to Young Duck. I respected this guy so much that I was like, if Young Duck says I can do it, and Young Duck is a legit genius, and he knows, and he knows me, because we we were in two classes together and we spent a lot of time together. If he thinks I can do it, then who am I to say I can't do it? <laughs> yeah, you know that's a lesson for mentorship. Is like by the way, he has no idea, probably. <laughs> well, he might not even remember that interaction, which is funny. But the the point is that when a crazy young kid comes up to you with a crazy dream, uh, you know, every once in a while, you should just pat them on the back and say, I believe in you. <laughs> like you can do it. If they look up to you, that means your words have power. And if you say, no, no, come on, be like reasonable, like, you know, uh, finish your schoolwork kind of thing. Like that's that's unreasonable to take that leap now, just finish your education, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Whatever, whatever the reasonable advice is, Every once in a while, maybe often as a mentor, you should say, you know, go see about a girl in, in California or whatever the equivalent is. <laughs> that was my moment. That was my Goodwill hunting moment. <laughs> it's your Goodwill hunting moment. Uh, man, I miss Robin Williams. I was a special guy. Uh, people yeah. love it uh, when I ask about book recommendations in general. Of course, your journey is just beginning, but is there something that jumps out to you? Technical, fiction, philosophical, sci-fi, coloring books, blog posts you read somewhere <laughs> that had an impact on your life. Uh, video games. You, <laughs> video games <laughs> that you recommend to others. Minecraft, <laughs> manual. <laughs> Manga. <laughs> I mean, yeah, video, you could mention video games too. That if there's something that jumps out to you that just had like an impact. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll say I really like the book, The the War of Art 
um, which is a book about creative resistance and the creative struggle and what it means to be creative. Yeah. Um, and part of what I see in this conversation and what you're doing, Lex, is so much of the War of Arts idea is that you just keep writing and writing and writing until you get to the new crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You just you just you just roll with it, right? And that's sort of what happens when you have like three hour conversations with people is yeah. you can only have so much scripted or societally constructed stuff until you get to the real you. And you have to show up. I mean, he's that book, that book is kind of painful. To, it's like, really painful. <laughs> and it's not something I would recommend for every part of it, but for what it did in my life at the time, it also kind of normalized, I don't know. Um, I Part of my coming of age story is a, part of it's about realizing that I'm a creative person and person who needs to create. Um, that's sort of a God-given thing, I think, for a lot of people. But it's something that I don't really feel like I can live without. And part of it was realizing that even within some of these more rigid structures, it's okay that I don't sort of fit in with them. And to hear about the struggles of other creatives was something for my own self-esteem and my own growing up that was really important to me. So I don't think the book itself might be perfect, but for what it did for my life, it was really impactful. Yeah, I think exactly. The words may not be... Uh exactly right by way of advice, but I think the journey that a lot of creatives take by reading that book is uh, kind of profound. He, he also has another one called Turning Pro, I think. I mean, he in general espouses like taking it seriously. Like uh, if you have a creative mind and you want to create something special in this world, go do it. It's yeah. not, don't, you know, show up. And so <laughs> many people- the blank page. So many people would like tell me like, would encourage me either blatantly or through like implicit means to like basically take the Apple S seriously. It's a good signal, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's a good signal because my really close friends, the ones who have always supported me, yeah. they never said that because they got it. They understood that, that was that that was my path. And they might be skeptical. They might be like, I mean, one of my friends I remember told me like, I was always like taken aback about why you were so certain this would work out. And he's like, I finally got it. Like once I saw it like popping off, but like before that I just didn't get it, but like he still supported me. And I think, I think it's a really good signal. And actually just the fact of going through this process has made me socially feel so much more connected. And I've somewhat consolidated my social life to some degree, but it's so much more vulnerable connected. And that's part of the creative process. I have to thank for that, I think. There's, there's something that's like unstoppable about the creative mind. It's like, it's right there, that fire. And I guess part of the part of the thing that you're supposed to do is let that fire burn in wh whichever direction. And it's gonna hurt. <laughs> it's, it's gonna hurt. Fire will hurt. Uh, but on topic of video games, you mentioned Stanley Parable offline. Is there, uh, you said you played some video games. Is there a video game that you especially love that you recommend I play, for example? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll mention, it's actually really in keeping with what we've been talking about. It's The Beginner's Guide, which is what I, it was made by the same guy, Davey Rendon, who made The Stanley Parable, which I, I briefly saw you. I, I just clicked the video and yeah. uh, then I went to sleep. It was yeah. like 2 a.m. <laughs> um, and then, um, but I briefly saw that you were looking at um, and it's the it's a game that is better treated as art, and I think um, 
I won't claim to understand the creator because that would be a cardinal sin to me of uh, as a creative person. But uh, it gets to the heart of a lot of the things that we've been uh, that, we, that we've been talking about, which is the creative mind. Um, the game can be interpreted in a lot of ways. In a feminist way, it could be interpreted as story of friends. It could be interpreted as um, the story of critics versus a creative. The way I like to interpret it, and I don't want to give out away too much, um, is the story of the creative part of your mind that creates just for the sake of creating, meaning the part that creates for no rhyme or reason or clear meaning. It's almost it's almost ethereal um, versus the part that's, you could call it the editor, you could call it the pragmatist, you could call it the necessary force of ego in our in our lives we can't totally be egoless right but we need to be egoless to be creative and how that sort of internal censure what role does it play and how do we allow our creative minds to be creative and yet how do we still become useful because um and it's funny that a video game right could <laughs> could have this it's in a fascinating tension which reminds me about the ridiculous question that every once in a while ask about meaning and death. So the, <laughs> this this whole th- this whole ride ends. You're at the beginning of the ride, but it could end any day. Actually, that's that's kind of the way human life works. Mm-hmm. You could die today. You could die tomorrow. Uh, do you think about your mortality? Do you think about death? Uh, do you meditate on it? And in that context, as the creative, but a, a pragmatist too, as running a startup. Uh, what do you think is the meaning of this whole thing? Yeah, so on mortality, right? Um, about about three years ago, four years ago now, I was uh, excited to go to Yale. I was playing six hours of squash a day, which squash is a sport I love so much. And I was really getting a lot better. And I was even thinking I could maybe walk onto the Yale team. Um and uh, I woke up one day, I felt really, really sick. I went and I decided not to go to squash that day. And I know, um, I wanted to, I almost did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you'll see how this story turns out. <laughs> you'll decide if I made the right choice. I decided not to go squash today and I decided to get my driver's license, uh, or I had to get my driver's license because I wanted to get driver's license before I you know, it's just how young I am before I went off to college because otherwise I might never get it. Um, and I'm going back and I successfully got my driver's license for Hashem. And <laughs> I go back to uh, I go back to my house and I decide I don't want to drive back because I just feel so sick. Like things are spinning. I have the worst headache. I come home, I run back right into my bed and feeling really sick to the point where I even like ask my mom who is a doctor. I'm like, should I, should I go to the hospital? And she's like, you can just wait it out. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll get better. Young, healthy. <laughs> I like guy. your mom. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you know, and then I, at one point, I look at my arms, and they're like covered in this like red splotchy stuff. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, mom, I think. And she's like, yeah, we have to go. <laughs> um, and so I go there, and they're like, you have scarlet fever, and uh, they're like, there's nothing we can do. You should probably just go back home. So I go back home. <laughs> Six hours later, I wake up. In the morning, they'd let me out at like 3 a.m. Um, they let me, I, I come home in the morning and I feel this, like a spear through my chest. And 
I'd never felt anything like it. And I was, it was very disconcerting when you have a, because we're all used to different sorts of pain, right? Yeah. And that was the sort of pain I never felt before. I suppose as an athlete, you're used to like dealing with yeah. pain. Um, so I tell my parents and immediately we hop back in the car. We go up to the same hospital as that six hours ago. And they initially didn't want to let me in. And I was like, I have chest pain. They're like, oh, come in. Because <laughs> they're like, you're a healthy guy. Wait your turn. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I have like a pain in my chest. And then they let me in. They start doing tests on me. They like put something like in my back, which is really scary. It's a huge needle. And I'm smiling because it's like one of the ways I reduce stress, I guess, or deal with this sort of thing and make light of it. But like know that, you know, it's de- it was definitely very scary in the moment. Shocking and scary. And they go and they they do a bunch of tests and they determined that a virus like attacked my heart. And I had myocarditis and pericarditis. And they said I had maybe 25 to 35% chance at one point of dying. And so I'm sitting in my, I, they, they admit me into the hospital. I'm in the bed, in my bed for about three weeks. Um, and I'm just, I'm just standing there. And I had this moment also that I remember v- very specifically where I was in so much pain that like I was crying not out of like emotional standpoint, but actually just purely out of the pain itself. Like I could feel my heart in my chest. And when I leaned back, I felt it touch my rib cage and feel horrible. So I couldn't go to sleep and lean back. I had to lean forward all throughout the night. Right. And I'm feeling my, ch- and I'm feeling my chest. I'm feeling this terrible pain in my chest and I'm crying unstoppably. And I mean, also maybe I should mention that at the time, I was someone who like refused to take in anything into my body that wasn't natural. And so a lot of the time I I, I tried to be unmedicated. Um, Eventually I I didn't (laughs) allow them to add a little medication into my body, but there's just so much uncertainty and pain. And the first time I had to come to terms with mortality. Uh, First of all, I think you still should have gone play squash. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. I thought thought you were serious about this. (laughs) You still carry that with you? sort of the, there is power to realizing the ride can end right in very in, suddenly very suddenly yeah and painfully <laughs> and you know it it has pragmatic application to like what you to trajectories you take through life right something else you should, that is worth noting is that i for the next year couldn't walk to my classes so I get to Yale, they put me in a medical single alone, and I have to get shuttled to all my classes. I have to ask, I had to ask a few professors to even move classes so I could actually get there. Um, I can't move my book, I can't lift my book bags. I can't, I can't walk upstairs. Um, I spent like 12 hours a day in my dorm room, just like staring at the walls. And more so, and more than that, all this like, you, I got to watch my body, like, deteriorate and, like, the muscle, like, fall off of it because I was, I was taking these pills and they're kind of catabolic. Um, and for an 18-year-old, I mean, I think every 18-year-old has feelings about their body, um, man or woman. And, you know, just seeing this, it's like you're watching sort of death transpire. And it, you're also very fatigued because your heart's not at peak condition and you're thinking about the future and a lot of the things you enjoy have kind of been stripped away from you 
And I, um, I took up a meditation practice, like started with like five minutes a day. Um, at my peak, I was at like 40 minutes a day, kept it up consistently for about two years. Um, and I started thinking about like, what do I want to do? And like, what do I care about? And to get to your point, I think you were asking like, how does this carry forward, right? I think I realized that, it, you know, there's an end and I realized that there are things I believe and things that I believe that might not be so overtly popular, but that I truly think make the world a better place. And in spite of, and then basically if, if my conditions provided, I wanted to make something that, I wanted to do something that would make me feel sort of whole in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing journey to take that time and to come out on the other end. Um, no, I mean, that's amazing. I did not realize like that there was a long-term struggle. I think that's in the end, if you do succeed, will have a profound positive impact because struggle is ultimately like humbling, but also empowering. So I'm glad to see that. But from the perspective of the creative, the other ridiculous question about meaning, do you think about this kind of stuff? Um, is that uh, the you know the, the meaning of life for you, the meaning of life for us, descendants of apes in general? The first thing I'd like to say is that I think part of like, when we talk about the meaning of life, the part of it is the fact that we get to struggle with this question and we get to do it together for, a long time and we sometimes I think it's accepting that there's no meaning at all and sometimes I think it's accepting that or even just parsing the phrase and thinking about the meaning of life I sometimes I'm look I'm very young um again I hope that anything I say now is going to be um very different in the future because I think meaning life has so many meanings that it'll be crazy to see what I think in 20 years about the meaning of life and yeah right from the future, cut him some slack. Please do. Um, <laughs> perspective, perspective, perspective. <laughs> Having said that, you know, I think part of what brings meaning to my life is things like this, where we think about these things with people who are really, really, really on the ball, and we get to connect with these people. That certainly brings meaning to my life, human connection. Yeah, this conversation is is just another like echo of the thing you're trying to create uh, in the digital space, right? Yes. I mean, that, that's the same kind of magic. From from what I understand about what you're trying to create is the same reason I fell in love with the long-form podcasting, like as a fan. That's why I listen to long-form podcasts. Is there something deeply human and genuine about the, the interchange through their voice? But I do think that connection through text can be even more powerful. Like I think about letters, I still write letters to Russia. You know, there's something powerful in letters. When you when you put a lot of yourself in the words you say, in the words you write, that's powerful. You can really communicate not just the actual semantic meaning of of uh, of the words, but like a lot of who you are through those words and create real connections. So I hope you succeed there. And listen, uh, Ryan, I think this was an incredible conversation. I'm glad that people like you are fighting the good fight 
for uh, bringing out the best in human nature in the digital space. I think that's a battleground where the good will win, like love will win. And I'm glad you're creating technology that does just that. So thank you so much for wasting all your time, for coming down. I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Thanks for talking today. Thank you for having me. Bam. (laughs) How many finger guns have you gotten at the end of the podcast? Zero. (laughs) Two now. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Ryan Schiller. And thank you to our sponsors, Allform, Magic Spoon, BetterHelp, and Brave. Click their links to support this podcast. And now, let me leave you with some words from George Washington on March 15th, 1783. If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.